During Homecoming's opening cutscene, we presumably witness Alan Shepard's admittance. It's Alex Shepard. What did I say? Alan Shepard, the astronaut? We had a whole Alan Shepard astronaut level. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was <laughs> Silent Hill in space. Be careful what you say on this. Someone will think that's a real thing. And be like, Is it true there was a Silent Hill in space? I'm Joe White, the voice of Chris Redfield. When I'm not surviving the horror of the Spencer Mansion, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. This is Katie O'Hagan, the voice of Mia Winters, and when I'm not babysitting temperamental bioweapons, I'm listening to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. My name is Richard Wall. Just think of me as a ghost from the past. This is Paula Rhodes, Evelyn in Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. I'm Riva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Hi, my name is Allison Court. My name is Sarah Coates, the voice of Marguerite Baker, and you are listening to Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Want to come to dinner? Welcome to the 33rd Crimson Head Podcast. Now, 33 may sound like a lot, but we have been recording the podcast now for almost 10 years. So that's that's what? That's like uh, 3.666 podcasts per year? Look, don't ask me. I majored in 100 uses for green herbs, not maths. I have yet to save Billy and Rebecca from being barbecued on the Ecliptic Express. And don't get me started on how to make V-Jolt. Although I do have an old family recipe that involves rum. Actually, it's just rum. It's just straight rum. <laughs> but enough, enough of mathematical Resident Evil puzzles, because tonight we are leaving Raccoon City once again for one of our favorite places, Silent Hill. We have not one, but two very special guests with us in the Crimson Head Mansion. Film producer, writer, director, composer, and actor who co-wrote Silent Hill Homecoming. Is there anything he doesn't do? We are delighted to be joined by Patrick J. Duty, and equally delighted to welcome writer, producer, director, and Silent Hill Homecoming co-writer, Chris Valenziano. Patrick and Chris, welcome to the Crimson Head Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was a very exciting intro. We've done all those things to some capacity, although I wouldn't be it would admit some of them. Some of them much worse than others. <laughs> much worse than oh, others. We, we have other information on you that we're that we're not allowed to share yet. We yeah, that's good. That. Hold on to that stuff. Hey, listen, my name is Joe White. I was the actor for Chris Redfield in Resident Evil Remake back in the early Cretaceous period. And joining me from your Crimson Head crew, we have the Oracle Dragon. Hello, everyone. Everybody's favorite architect, George Trevor. Hi, good evening. Also joining us, a very old friend. He can be found on many of our earlier podcasts, having been an integral part of the team before leaving for pastures new, an official Silent Hill nutcase. Welcome back, USS Command. Howdy. Shall we kick it off with the first question here? Gentlemen, what were your backgrounds with the Silent Hill series prior to Silent Hill Homecoming, both as gamers and industry professionals? And at what stage of development did you join the production? I'll let Chris talk about the backgrounds. And then, Chris, I'll jump in on the stage of development we joined in at. So the backgrounds were that Patrick and I were good friends with one of the original producers on the game, a guy named Marwan Abdurazak. He was a college friend of ours. We've known him for years. We had been writing some horror films. We had written something for the Sci-Fi Channel, a few other things that were kicking around out there. And he brought us in because the game had gotten to a point where they needed some writers. They needed some people who could actually tackle the dialogue and the story elements. And a lot of it was making sense of a lot of the disparate elements they had and a lot of the um, ideas that 
that they had that they wanted to put in and tying it all together to make sure that it made sense to an audience because they were so involved in it and especially involved in the technical aspects of it. So they wanted to bring some writers in. So we went in after the game had been developed a bit. The concepts were there. The gameplay mechanics were there. And we came in and had a very, very extensive interview process. They wanted to make sure we understood the game and understood storytelling. Patrick was a huge, huge fan of the series. He had played all the games. He knew all of them very, very, very well. I was a horror fan. I didn't know the series as well, but I knew how to take the elements that they wanted to put in the game and make sure that they made sense to somebody who was playing the game for the first time or for people who didn't understand all the backstory that we had hidden within the game. So we came in a a bit into the production. At that point, they had the basic storyline. And I think one of our very first jobs was to to look at the storyline and say, okay, here's what works. Here's what doesn't work. Wait, why is that happening there? Someone needs to explain that earlier and just make sure the story itself made sense. And from there, we went on to when we really first started doing the real writing that began with the, the IGCs and then going into some more of the, the detailed parts of the game as it went in later on. Mm-hmm. You guys have written screenplays, obviously. How different is the process? You said you had to come in and look at the story structure and kind of get that right. What are the similarities and differences between that and writing a screenplay? When we met with Double Helix, this is before they had become the collective or vice versa. I forget which order it was. It was the collective first and then collective. When we met with the collective first, they had been one of the U.S. game studios that had put in like a bid to get the game. So they had created a world. They had created a map. They had already created like a sample level, which we'll talk about because that comes into your Resident Evil question later on. They had already gotten the contract to the game. They were looking for the writers. Chris had said they showed us this outline that we had to kind of poke holes at. We also had to write some samples for them on like just some scenes not said in anything other than Silent Hill World. You know, it's interesting because we didn't really understand at all what we were getting ourselves into when it came to game writing. Obviously, we played a lot of video games, but we had no understanding of like, A, how milestones work in gaming as far as like how the delivery system works very different from TV and from film. That was like a back and forth, like we write... They build, they design, the lead designer like changes things. We come back in six months, like, hey, nine of those characters have been combined to two because they're too expensive. And in the world of expensive meaning, they take up too much room within the game's architecture of memory and all that stuff. So that was very much a learning curve. John Manley at the time was the lead designer when we started the game, and he was extremely generous with like explaining to us how this all works and ultimately what the responsibilities would be. So it was fun because IGCs, which is what we just assumed the writing would be, were really like, you know, only maybe 15, 20% of what we were about to get into because level designs have all kinds of stuff and not just environmental art, but also like all the dialogue and all the string files. As you know, Joe, you read million ways to say there's a door. Well, we had to write all those versions of how to say there's a door. So there is all these little bits and pieces of writing. There's larger story sense, which we love. Then there's IGCs, which tie to the story. Then there's level design that requires writing. Again, each one of these people have like the little department. So you got to work with the lead designers on what you're going to write there. You got to work with the level designer on what you're going to write, what they need there, all that stuff. So it was it was very cool. It was a lot of fun. And it was a two-year process, which again, we weren't, not that we, we didn't love, we didn't, we wouldn't know that was what it was going to be. You know, we said no clue. So very interesting way to jump into it. I think also our naivete in some aspects probably helped us be excited about it because we didn't come in with any preconceived notions about like rules about how things had to be written. Mm-hmm. And Silent Hill particularly has such a way with bending the rules and sort of bending the genre of gaming that I think some of that actually kind of helps a little bit in a way. This is yours, you remember. Take it. 
Josh! Josh, come back! In terms of it relating to writing movies, I would say that we didn't go into it thinking like, oh, we have to write this like a movie, like we need a first act, second act, third act structure. I think we just wrote it as a story. You know, we knew that this was going to be told not in a two hour movie. Correct. was going to be over the course of a game. So we wrote it just as a story. The in-game cinematics, obviously, those felt more like a movie scene. And we wrote those like movie scenes. But everything else, I think it was just sort of like, what's the story that's being told, regardless of what the, the media is? I'm interested in terms of your relative familiarity with the series. And I wondered whether that played on who felt more daunted than the other. Patrick, maybe being aware of what the Silent Hill fandom can be like, quite a daunting project to take on. I was like, I jumped to the chance because I just love, I mean, I wanted to work on games and I love, I mean, I really love Silent Hill. I, do, I don't really spend a lot of time playing a lot of games. I try to play them when I can these days. It's almost impossible. Just to go back, I bought the game out of the trunk of a dude's car in a parking lot of the Dayland Mall because I couldn't get a copy of the game anywhere. I think he had it before the game came out. I never asked him where he got it from. Uh, and I remember Chris actually, it was, we lived in Miami. He came to my apartment to play this. He's like, this is a pretty freaky game. We had never really quite seen anything like it. And then I subsequently played the other three games after that. And I love them all for various reasons. So getting into it wasn't daunting. As far as fandom is concerned, this is 2006 when we got asked to start this game. The world of fandom on the internet was a very different place than it is today. Not that I couldn't see the writing on the wall. I mean, we definitely knew like American Western developers. Yeah. And we'll get into this, this sort of when we saw the first, we saw that coal mine, you guys mentioned the coal mine later in your questions, but there was a sample level that we saw and I remember watching it and I was thinking like, mm, I don't feel like I'm watching a Silent Hill game for the first time. They were very much getting into what Resident Evil 4 had done, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. So I was more just concerned about overall, not just what our part was, be, just what the fans would react to in seeing this game that had a little more of a straight narrative, not just story-wise, but just gameplay-wise definitely felt out of the more sort of weird, ethereal gameplay of the first few games so everybody was concerned quite frankly <laughs> i think that the difference in stuff now though is that at the time yeah we thought about that and the fan base but it was very much of the fan base in that moment like are people gonna like this game when they play it right now because of what they've seen leading up to it mm -hmm. i don't think either of us thought for a second that we have to think about what the fans might think about this in 15 years no when we're interviewed on a podcast in 2023 that people would still have any opinion whatsoever. I mean, it really thought like the reviews that come out in 2007, 2008, that will be, you know, the writing on the wall, good or bad. And then that's the end of it. We, I mean, never thought that like anybody would care what we did past that. I can completely relate to that. Yeah, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can. Having done the voice of Chris in the remake, nobody could have been more surprised than me to get a phone call from George Trevor in 2014 saying, hey, there's a lot of fans who'd like to talk to you about doing the voice of Chris. I had completely forgotten about doing it. <laughs> yeah, for you, it's just that you rolled into a gig. It was, yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny how that works. So Very strange. Talk about how fans react. We were at Comic-Con promoting the game, and then some guy was walking around in this like really cool pyramid costume. He had this great pyramid costume thing. I walked up to him like, oh, man, I worked on one of the Silent Hills. He goes, oh, really? Awesome. Which one? I said, Homecoming. He literally said nothing and just turned around and walked away. Oh. <laughs> oh. Ouch. That had to hurt. I mean, it's, by the way, significantly worse for web developers online now. I mean, yeah. like, Jesus, talk about, like, Arkham Asylum and what I read. If I find you, I'll murder your family and kill your children and go back in time and destroy your console so you can never <laughs> find video games as a passion. 
I think these people should be locked in a room and forced to play Pong and Asteroids. <laughs> we'll see what we had to deal with back in the, you know, right. back in the day. So in the uh, promotional material, Alex questions if he's related to Mary from Silent Hill 2. Was this actually the case? Does he do? Is that in the blog? No, that's in the uh, the UK promotional material where he writes like a journal. He's got a bunch of notes with him. The blog is the US website. And then after that blog ends, he starts a physical journal that's on the UK website. In it, he's writing about a bunch of history of the town and, and what he's researched himself. And he mentions how a guy goes to Silent Hill looking for his uh, wife, Mary Shepherd Sunderland, and he questions, are we related? Oh, yes. I have nothing that shows up in any of my writing about that. Alex's long lost aunt. <laughs> I don't have anything about, I don't have anything. Let's see here. Rodney, you've out-nerded the writers. Hey, it happens. I have uh, Wheeler talking about how Mary Todd Lincoln went, went crazy. Is that uh, the same thing? <laughs> That's the Mary you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> said, no, I don't have anything that is... I have nothing that's showing up in any of my notes about... Let's take a look in here. I'm just trying to search for Mary. Uh, Somebody getting mad at us about Mary not having multiple personality disorder... Also, was she in Alcamella or Brookhaven? In SH2, you search for Brookhaven. Alcamella's used in SH1 when Harry goes looking for Cheryl and finds Dr. Coffin. So we did have a reference to Mary in the asylum scene. Apparently, at one point, there might have been... Boy, this, this document's hilarious. There's so much yelling at us. Like, <laughs> why is there a chart for Alex and Alcamella with three question marks? It's like, okay, Bill, calm down. Uh, <laughs> Patrick, I'm looking at Elle's blog, and I'm just reading this. And like, you clearly wrote this stuff. I wrote all of L's. I wrote L's and you did Alex, and we both wrote Wheeler's. What are your essential ingredients for an immersive survival horror experience? I'll jump in this one. Good. Since I played a lot of this survival horror stuff. I would say that half the fun of these games is exploration and really feeling like you're actually in the environment. There's a lot of things that, not writing withstanding, but like that the atmosphere, the location, all this stuff has to really work. So Silent Hill has a great thing, just like the way the footsteps work and the way that the foggy sound works and the wind hollering and the music. But you also, I think, have to feel extremely isolated, which is where I think the game is really good. Because I think the difference between the Red's Evil games from the beginning of Red's Evil is that there have always been a little more action-based where Silent Hill is more just like there's this always impending sort of element of dread. So we were always in the way we shaped some of the story was that we tried to always give environments descriptions or whatever as far as we were writing, like how we'd want to feel if we were walking in this space in real life and what would make us more unnerved. So you go at some point, you go to the founder's room in the game. Mm -hmm. And I was always like, we should have like weird artwork on the walls that like when you look, examine it close up, it's like some extremely weird, violent, like almost WPA type artwork. And I think we described that. And I thought like that to me in the horror game is like you walk in, you see a place and then you start to slowly deconstruct what you're around you. And it, at first it feels kind of normal, but then you start to realize it all feels very insidious behind the walls. I think that's what makes the immersive part of it really scary because it's just not knowing what you're going to encounter versus an onslaught of things that have to come at you all the time. So much of it really comes out of the design element from like guys like Manly and Brian Horton, the people who designed the game. But we tried to in our writing at least evoke a sense of like this is a scary environment you're walking into so that we were all on the same page or maybe just for the fun of writing it so it was enjoyable for the three readers that worked at Double Helix that had to read our writing. That's the essential ingredient is that isolation, that not knowing what's next and that all that sound and visual that it's really weird and creepy surrounding you as you as you go through the environment. I think that's crucial. 
What I really miss from the Resident Evil series is those environmental descriptions, particularly in Joe's game, you're walking around the Spencer Mansion, just the descriptions of the, on the paintings, of the artwork, and that just really gives you that immersive atmosphere. Yeah, that really comes through in Homecoming, reading the descriptions of wondering why Alex is missing from particular photographs. And Yeah, definitely cool. Definitely cool stuff. You're talking about how the environmental and sounds and stuff makes me think of Silent Hill 3 when you're in the mall. I love the mall. I love that level. Just the fact that you could just stand there and just listen to the sound effects and the music playing, it just sets you off because you don't know where it is. And one time I actually had the music track playing on my MP3 when I was walking through the woods and it scared the crap out of me. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it, yeah. Well, I remember the, the very first time seeing this game, and Patrick mentioned before that he got the game and was playing it at home and went over to his place and he had all the lights turned off. He had the game on. He probably had like surround sound or something like that. <laughs> and I sat down and like just watching him play. I'm like, what is this? And I just remember waiting as he's walking forward through this fog that it just keeps regenerating and regenerating. And he keeps walking through this fog. And I'm like, when do you see something? And then we just hear a noise. I'm like, okay, I, I got to go home. This is, I can't, I can't, I can't watch this. It was, it was very funny. And I thought it was really good. I mean, it's so funny now you look at, I mean, someone one time when we were working on this game showed me like Silent Hill 1, which I hadn't seen it forever. And it's just so blocky looking. It's really hilarious to see. But at the time, I think your imagination fills in some of the spaces. There is something else to be said for the sort of non-realism of the, of the game design back then that also sort of separates you from reality, which makes it a little eerie. And I think sometimes we get more in the photorealism, like photorealism of stuff, which I think, look, I mean, whatever. It's the philosophy of gameplay, but there is something about things that don't look quite real that make it scarier. Mom, your dress is... What was that? The basement. I actually found, I went back and looked. So I have the town hall public area and here's what I wrote, paintings on the walls. There are a series of paintings illustrating the beginnings of the town. Each features a different founding family member posing in an act of service. Isaac Shepard, the town's first mayor, operates the new well, right? So like that ties into Amnion, that ties into the journey of Alex. Farmer Mason Bartlett breaks ground on the Shepherd's Glen Town Hall, of course, because he, you know, buried the kids alive. Cornelius Fitch, the town butcher, prepares a pig for market. Of course, he becomes a doctor, but he slices and dices. So all these things that we wrote in here. Oh, wow. We wrote that? <laughs> I'm looking right at it, man. We wrote it. And I'll I wrote in the founder's room, none of the paintings are labeled names, but can be figured out by matching the pictures with the picture of them all in the lodge hall. And we had the Book of Ideals, the Manifesto of the New Way. I remember writing this. None shall speak out against the resurrections. And, th- and then we had that in his name, so shall it be. We we had that all over the place. That was one of our things that we wrote. So we, ch- like, uh, certainly, you start putting in, like, fake Bible stuff, it's always creepy, right? So, like, anytime that's fake religious text, no matter what religion you're talking about, like, it always sounds weird. So we could kind of convince them to do those because it didn't impact the gameplay. And then if Brian or John liked it, they would put it in the game. Not everything made it in, but if they thought it was cool, they'd be like, that's kind of fun. And and that speaks back to what you brought up about like the immersive nature. Like I'm exploring this town hall. I'm looking at these pictures. I'm seeing the new well. And it's like, oh, if I'm figuring the game out, it's kind of cool that we have that. And if you don't pay attention, it doesn't impact the gameplay at all, you know? You said uh, Fitch was cutting up a pig, right? Is it supposed to imply maybe cannibalism because people call human flesh long pig? Long pig. Uh, I don't think cannibalism. I think just the idea. I that think the slicing. Even back, yeah. yeah, even back then, the, the family was butchers, and that's going to foreshadow, you know, having to cut up his child. Be the best way to hide the body, though. <laughs> very good way. Very good way. Very dark. It might it might nullify the sacrifice. We'd have to check the uh, the bylaws. <laughs> 
you guys might be, remember the name? I hear some names. We, we had a great time like coming up with the old names for people. So it was like the original founders were Edwin Holloway, Cornelius Fitch. It's a great name. Mason Bartlett and Isaac Shepard. Always good. Sounds like names of people who believe in a weird God from a foggy state. Yeah. Very, very Mayflower. <laughs> Fitch wasn't the name of the original. We added Fitch. That was our last name we came up with. Yeah, I think the original name didn't pass like clearance or something. What do you want? Are you all right? Whose blood is that? What have you done? S stay away from me! Fans of traditional survival horror with the genre's fixed camera angles, third-person perspective, and focus on atmosphere over action were hugely disappointed when Yasuhisa Karamura's beta for Resident Evil 4, which embraced all those gameplay mechanics, was scrapped by Shinji Mikami for a very different type of game with a very western narrative, but in the process saved the series from years in the wilderness by significantly growing the audience. Do you feel Konami had one eye on this when receiving pitches for Silent Hill Homecoming? and overseeing its early concepts. Well, 100%. I mean, when we... Resident Evil 4 was like a massive deal. The fact that it like it, it became like more of an over-the-shoulder third person, that you had more sort of walking around in the environment versus you came into a room and then it was a fixed angle. And that was exactly what Konami had wanted to do with Homecoming, or at the time it was just Silent Hill 5, and then it was called Flesh and Blood at one point. But when we saw that, that was what I said. When I first saw that level, I was like, wait, where is like I walk in the room and suddenly I'm like at a totally other side of the geography and I don't know where I am. They're like, no, no, this is going to be like Resident Evil 4. And I was like, well, it's kind of interesting. Like I was kind of into that thing, but they were they were saying that that was a very passe way of approaching games. Now, modern games had to be somewhat of a third person or first person. That's what contemporary gamers were playing. And they thought the fixed camera felt like a very sort of outdated version of gameplay. So when we jumped into that, they were like, we want to look like how Res Evil worked. And so that was the way. I don't know. I'm back and forth. It is nice to kind of be able to walk around in that space, but there is something cinematic about locking you into certain angles in the camera that become disorienting. So if you're walking in one direction out of frame and then you're coming in from the other frame and you're trying to understand where you are in your top, it's kind of cool. But then again, I mean, like we could have a whole conversation about the philosophy of gameplay. Are you the player? The character is the same person as the player? Or are you a player controlling a character? So if you suddenly have multiple camera angles, does it take you out, right? So part of what they wanted to do was never, ever, take away control from the player and having those camera angles absolutely takes away control from the player. It reminds you that you're not in this environment. So to some extent, I understand the philosophy of that. I also understand that the business of games has to connect to what modern players are playing. And that's what was popular. Grand Theft Auto had changed. I mean, Wolfenstein had changed the game. Doom had changed the game. Grand Theft Auto had absolutely changed the game because it was this huge sandbox and Resident Evil in the horror thing completely changed the game. And it was pretty mind-blowing. But then in Resident Evil, you're like, you're fighting zombies. So there's something to be said for like, it's a more of a combat game. I don't know. I mean, I really could go back and forth on this. So the answer to the original question, yes, Konami absolutely was watching what Resident Evil was doing. And that was absolutely part of what that first design we had seen was going to be. And that was how the gameplay was going to be. And I think it's, I think it succeeds in some sense, but it fails in other senses because you can't like jump over a fucking bed in our game. And that really is annoying. <laughs> like you're fighting a needle in a hotel and it's like, but in Grand Theft Auto, you can do anything, right? So now if you're going to tell the audience, the game player, okay, now we're going to steal this idea about a 3D space that you can wander in, you can't then get them stuck in the environment where like you can't jump behind 
behind a bed. It's like, it's ridiculous. So, and you can't swing a pipe more than yeah. once per 10 seconds. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to, oh, yeah. if you're going to do it, you got to do it. You got to, you, you can't, you can't just pull the punches. And also I'm not a big fan of pass fail gameplay. That drives me crazy. We had a lot of pass fail stuff. I'm not a big fan of the pass fail. Oh, you got to run and then pass fail, you're going to duck something. And there was, there was more of that in the original levels, but we, I think some, some of it made it into the final game. And I'm not a big fan of the pass fail because it just feels like a game conceit. It's like, oh my God, now you're playing a video game, right? Yeah. Is this a runner? Is it a survival game? Exactly, exactly. But, you know, to some extent, like it was an experiment. They were trying a lot of new things with new developers, new new gameplay style. So, you know, you can't fault them for that. I think they felt probably limited with the Silent Hill audience mm -hmm. and horror fans like that's one group. But you want to broaden the appeal of the game. And so more people are probably more willing to play a game that feels like more of a sandbox game where you can walk around in that kind of space. So it's a very tricky thing. It's like you want to stick to the roots and you want to honor the fans, but then also you want to bring in new fans. So you try to find this middle balance, you know. We're going to talk a little bit later about the movie, but also knowing that this is going to come out after the movie and that there might be people who saw the movie that might come and play the video game who weren't video game fans or weren't early Silent Hill video game fans. They're like, oh, I just saw this Kick-Ass movie. Oh, there's a video game? I'm going to go play that. That is and true. And make sure that those people were entertained. So many people were like, oh, I know this movie. And I'm like, you know, it's a game first. Like, they didn't know that it had come from a game. And still I get that when I tell people who worked on Silent Hill. Like, oh, you mean the movie? I'm like, no, the game. They're like, the game that came out after the movie? I'm like, no, the game came before the movie. Stop talking to me. No, I don't say that. As Resident Evil fans, please don't talk to us about movies. We're, uh... <laughs> what do you mean? Very sensitive topic. Come on. They're all excellent in every way. <laughs> On that subject, I think Oracle Dragon's got a question that follows on from that. All right. Sorry, we're rambling. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> rambling usually gives you more insight on things. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much, um, like we were talking about Resident Evil and the combat action elements and stuff. And since they pretty much ditched the fixed camera angles and other survival horror elements, do you think that Sun Hill is ending up in that same direction? And do you think it's for the best or do you think it's for the worst? I think we had some larger issues on the, well, one of the things is like, if we're going to have this gameplay that's designed to be a little more action-y, then you've got to be able to go all the way with it. So in those two examples, Alex swinging the pipe does take forever, which is really obnoxious. Then he can't kind of interact with every single area that he can escape from. So then you get annoyed. So that's just from a gameplay perspective, like it kind of is irksome. I think as far as tonally is concerned, Downpour followed the same suit. And, I, and also Downpour to me actually felt less scary than Homecoming did. Because it's trying to create more, there's more realism involved in the game. And I think, and there's more speed involved and the pacing feels a little more quicker. And to jump ahead to now, like when PT came out a couple of years ago, which I like loved, I was like, this is like a combination of the two worlds. It feels very weird and also has that first person thing and it never went anywhere. And then we started seeing like the newer Silent Hill stuff. So Konami still believes in it. It's a huge, it's a huge franchise. And I think there's a possibility for it in the future to continue to be big. So as far as whether or not it has widened the fan base, I don't really know. It's, it's a great question because did the fan base outside of Silent Hill who start playing the games now and even know about the early games having fixed camera does that even mean anything to them they would have to have played those games to know that I just don't know going back if people even know what that is I think they I think they know more of the modern day Silent Hill stuff for better for worse and I don't know what the overall numbers are if it's widened it so it's a tricky thing I I'm not sure I know that was the goal but we took a lot of heat for it when the game came out for sure Josh! Josh! Don't let me fall! Petri?
Chris and I will be the first to tell you that like we pretty much make fun of anything we work on. So we will poke holes and make fun of a lot of stuff. And we've certainly had a lot of things that we make fun of in this game. Like we brought up how you can't jump over a bed in the hotel when you're getting attacked. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of other stuff in the game that's really silly, too. But that being said, I think it had some really great moments. And I loved the story of coming out to Shepherd's Glen in a new environment. So we had a lot of really unique areas to play with. I think people just automatically go, oh, Western developer, they don't understand the kind of horror that the game is being made. And maybe maybe that's true. Maybe we couldn't recreate the same sort of more visual palette that was done with the original designers. That's very possible. Uh, but I think everybody who made that worked in this game went in with like the best foot forward to make a great game. And some parts of it really work and some parts don't. But we always appreciate anybody who actually finds the merits in the game. And, and also we laugh along with the ones who poke fun at the game too. <laughs> Sounds to me like you absolutely do get it because listening to you reference the kind of the realism speaks to why I just haven't something about the remakes, recent remakes of Resident Evil 2 and 3 in stark contrast to the remake that Joe was involved with because that kept the traditional survival horror tenants of fixed camera angles and pre-rendered backdrops. But the remakes of 2 and 3, for me, just kind of lack that atmosphere, what made me fall in love with the genre that I get with the originals that clearly obviously don't have the realistic graphics that you get in the in the character models. But interestingly, although everything does look much more realistic and, and very shiny, character models looking almost human-like. The actual textures, if you actually go that extra layer beyond, try and find some immersive depth in the game by trying to investigate pictures on the wall, notes on the wall, the textures are so low-grade, you can't read anything. So I, I don't know if that perhaps speaks to Capcom focusing on the wrong thing, whereas listening to what you think is important. And that so comes through with Homecoming. I came to the game not having any preconceptions. It was the first Silent Hill game that I had played. Just immediately, the atmosphere and the, the foreboding feeling and, and investigating, why am I not in the pictures? It just felt so uneasy for all its faults that people may say the pros for anyone who loves survival horror i would say please go out and play it because they, they do so far outweigh you know any small technical issues and, and we'll come to speak to why uh, a lot of it obviously no through no fault of your own is to do with a lot of cut content that was removed it's all our fault it's all our fault <laughs> but i mean but the thing you're talking about is like there so all this thing you're talking about like there we are though we are like at the time like the first like next gen like they want to push what the limits of the of the technology can do horton and those guys like they were really like in love with Silent Hill. So all those things you brought up, like are all them, that atmosphere, the fog, all that stuff. At the same time, though, they're being tasked to be like Xbox 360, PS3, next gen. You've got better graphic capabilities. You've got better engine capabilities. Push those limits. So now it's like, okay, well, how do we take some of that grainy spookiness of the game that was by default a limit of the technology that's just the nature of designing and then now it's like okay well now we have to like take this thing that people expect well if i'm looking at a 360 game it better look good and then they're like wait a minute now it looks too real and now it's like the gameplay is too fast paced like it was we were they were really kind of stuck in the middle of it and and it was a two-year two-year window which is not a lot of time to make a game as i learned while we were making it i didn't know that but it seemed like a lot of time to me but they're like a real game is like five years so they had to get it out it was a lot of stuff going on you know so it was a dynamic of like trying to make the best game and then also serving everything else that has to go in when you're a business. Hmm. Feels strange to be back here again. Homecoming was announced. Feedback from the Silent Hill fan base was mixed. Some having concerns that not only had Konami outsourced the game to a third party, they had also chosen a Western developer. 
Did such feedback influence your approach of any aspect during the various stages of development? We were aware of it. I mean, I don't think we looked at it as like, this is a detriment. I mean, I think it was like, oh, look, we're the first Western, you know, developer. Oh, it's a new game. It's new. Like, I think for us, it was like, this is an opportunity to do something great. And maybe we were naive with that. But we were like, the idea being that it's never been done by a Western developer before. It hasn't been done for next gen before. There's this movie that's coming out that's going to raise awareness about it. I think for us, it was kind of like, this could be the next big one that launches like another series of them. And this could be a whole new, we're creating this whole Shepherd's Glen world. So maybe this is like the next series of like trilogy of them or something like that. I don't think we really looked at it too much as like, we're worried that we're going to let somebody down or that we're going to be upset by us. But what we've done more just like, here's great opportunity. I think when it came out, though, then we heard other things. You didn't feel it was going to be that much of a departure from what had been established as the main experience previously. No, because I think that we we knew the games and we knew the vibe of the games. Yeah, yeah. And so we, to overuse a word like vibe, but I think we knew the mood of the games and we were like, we're going to take that mood that we're familiar with and we're going to up the ante on all of it. And so I don't think, yeah, we were thinking too much that it would disappoint like that. But yeah, clearly there are people who liked the way that the other ones were done more and we found that out. The guy from Comic-Con did turn his back on me. There's a nostalgia factor. Always, always. These games are crappy, low-res things. They establish that initial response to the to the material and that you're constantly chasing that first, it's like the first hit. You're constantly chasing that, uh, that sensation that you got the first time you walked down the hallway and the dogs jumped through the window. You look at the dogs now and they're like, they look, they look ridiculous, you know? Right. <laughs> and I'm sure that, you know, had we done everything more similar to the first game, everyone would have been like, eh, it's boring. It's a ripoff of the first one. You know, we're basically just like J.J. Abrams making uh, Star Wars. Origins. I mean, yeah. we're just like him. Just, we get it, J.J. Yeah, we give us a call when we want to work on the series. The funny thing about all that next gen stuff was that the promise was things like you could have real world shifts versus like dip to black and we wake up and now we're in blood and rust. Things could peel, there could be a lot more animation. It still ended up being only in cutscenes, but that was cool that you could see that. But there was a talk that like, you'd actually be able to walk around and that would occur around you in gameplay. And we never accomplished it for whatever reason, but that was always the big talk about the real world shifts. And that was gonna be sort of where the focus on what the new tech could do. I think anything that came after Silent Hill 2, like three took a beating, four took a huge beating. And again, there was not like, we didn't have Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Well, we did, but like no one was really there. Like if we were doing it now, we'd probably know a lot more about what the fans felt about a Western development team going into it. We just knew, hey, they're the first Western developers for whatever it means. There wasn't like a constant onslaught of people instant messaging us, tagging us in posts, (laughs) scrutinizing every single piece of a still that comes out or early on from something that someone leaks that just didn't exist then oh man you got you got let off lightly i tell you you should you should read some of the replies that the poor silent hill ascension twitter feed gets whenever they post the latest update they are getting roasted we would have gotten some really angry messages on myspace at the time i'm sure (laughs) linkedin (laughs) how did your narrative for homecoming develop and change from the initial vertical slice to the final draft? And were there a consistent theme or feature that remained throughout from your concepts? 
Yeah, I'd say that the idea of the family betrayal and redemption was kind of the driving force through the whole thing. The narrative, we said when we came in that the basic story was in place. And the story being that there's going to be this guy, he's come back from thinking he's coming back from the war. He ends up in his town in Shepherd's Glen. It's all abandoned. Something's happened. He's, he's like, it looks around. fine. He's like, it everything's totally okay. Fine. Everything's okay. <laughs> and then we're going to learn that, oh my God, at the, let's call it the midpoint of the game, we're going to learn that, oh my God, they're neighbors to Silent Hill and that there's this been creeping evil over it. And we're going to learn that uh, they had to sacrifice their children. Like all that stuff was really in there from the beginning. What came in some of the details, that's kind of what was added later. There was a, a fifth family and a fifth level that was actually the Wheeler family was also one of the families that was involved in all of it. And I, I don't remember when it actually happened, but I think we went away for a month or something, came back and they're like, oh, we had to ditch the whole uh, sawmill section with the Wheeler family. And we're like, oh, oh, OK. So we're like, so he's just the sheriff now. Okay, that's fine. And uh, we only have four sacrifices. Yep, that's what it is. Sort of things like that. And, you know, just certain relationships uh, that changed a little bit or specific things. But that story and that theme really was there from day one. And I think that was always the driving force throughout. Did you almost feel that you had to kind of change things on the hop as things were being removed and taken out in terms of allowing people to understand maybe motivations between characters? Because I know there's a lot of cut content with regard to Judge Holloway. So did you almost feel that as things were being removed, you then had to kind of work around that by adding, adding anything to kind of tie ends together? Absolutely. And I think that became some of our job was being the um, policeman of that was that we would we go in and say, oh, so, you know, um, uh, we realized that for budget reasons, we got to cut this thing or that thing. We'd be like, but then who introduces Judge Holloway? And I go, oh. Well, that's a good point. And we'd be like, okay, so I guess we're going to change this IGC so we can set her up in that thing. I mean, there were things like that would happen all the time. You know, they'd say, well, this puzzle, you know, we'd say, uh, we'll introduce this character in this puzzle sequence or something like that. And then that puzzle would get turned into a different puzzle. And we'd be like, yeah, but that doesn't make sense now that that person was there. And so we'd have to creatively come up with some way to make it work. And sometimes maybe it worked, sometimes it didn't, especially as we got further into it, because we started adding all these layers for the journals and for the artwork and for the newspaper articles you find or just random things around as we'd have something and then we'd add another thing and that would make the other thing wouldn't make sense anymore. So we'd have to go back and change that thing. And just always being on top of all of that kind of really became our main job for the last stretch of the game, I, I think. It's like herding cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the Havoc Physics engine provided more immersive experience by allowing for interactive environmental items to be knocked over, causing enemies to be alerted to the player location. Was this and other game mechanics, such as Alex's flashlight drawing attention to his location, prevalent in your mind during the writing process so you could layer the narrative over the gameplay attributes? You know, the, the Havoc thing was interesting. We I remember we watched a demo of that, like, it was like a demo where you got to play like in this room that was all just shades of gray and you got to run around and knock cans over and stuff like that. I don't remember, but anybody who's played this game more than I have, did it actually ever make a difference if you knock something over? Did things actually react to that? I feel like they never did. I think we told people that they were going to do it, but I don't seem to recall it ever actually doing that. Nothing in our writing ever was impacted by that. Yeah, it certainly never had anything to do with our storytelling of we're like in this level, if you walk in, you bump into a chair, that that is going to somehow reveal part of the story. Mm -hmm. Maybe we knew that it wasn't really going to work that well. 
in the hospital, there's that section when if you smash the glass in the room where there's one of the nurses and there's that fantastic silhouette when she's got illuminated by the television and uh, you have to be very, very careful and, and not alert if you creep into anything, if you knock anything over in that room. After that, I don't remember it really playing any key role in the gameplay and I, I'm not sure if it would have had had the Alcamel Hospital section not been so severely cut because, I mean, my word, looking at the concepts, that the, the map of that section was huge initially. Knocking stuff over would alert enemies to your location, but there just wasn't enough areas where they took advantage of that. So, like, you might have a can, a garbage can you can knock over, but if it's in a corner of the map, you kind of have to go out of your way to kick it to make <laughs> yeah, them find exactly. so. Okay, yeah. so there you go. I mean, like, it was very funny, though. But it definitely didn't impact anything on us. But we were aware of it. We thought we saw We played the demo. I was like, this is pretty cool. We had written an idea that I didn't ever use, which was that I wanted to use it in the car. I thought when walking on this, the streets, they always have cars, right? Car, there's cars seemingly everywhere in Silent Hill and no one's driving them. <laughs> and I thought it'd be cool if you, again, in trying to like twist the genre, not the genre, but kind of like play with the audience who knows the game. You know, in if you play the first four games that you go up to a car, you can't do it. You can't interact with it. You can't drive it, obviously. So I wanted it to be like where people have normally been used to not doing anything. If you end up getting too close to the car, I always thought it'd be cool cool if a pair of hands on the other side like hit the window oh man yeah and i was like yeah we never did it but i thought that i was like that'd be cool like because the audience never expects that who plays the game because like the cars are just environments so why not try to add a couple and again nothing would impact the gameplay would not like kill you it would not give you a clue it just was like a weird thing there's something in the car and if you get close to it it could do that and when i saw the havoc engine i was like oh can that can we map it so it does it or whatever you do and they were like yeah and then like whatever it's like a million ideas this can't ever happen they can't only happen but i think they stole your idea for silent hill downpour because you get you get that one scene don't you when you look through the um the binoculars at the cable car and that one bloodied hand print get tom Um, hewlett on the phone (laughs) (laughs) we're friends with him On the subject of game mechanics enhancing immersion, we've seen with Alan Wake 2 how the same location can be transformed with an alternative set dressing, allowing the gamer to then use this makeover to complete puzzles. A new scenario is rewritten over the existing location, changing the environment, and in doing so, the puzzle can then be solved. Before leaving prematurely during development, systems designer David Freed had created puzzles, the completion of which were also dependent on the player's ability to transfer between two filters for a single location the normal and the other world. What are your thoughts on this and the mechanic not being part of the final game build? I thought that was a big mistake. I thought that had been something really cool. I wanted the idea that you could like be in a space and it could shift in real time to one of the other states and then that would like impact the puzzle. And then you could, I mean, David had the ideas for the puzzles, but that notion that we'd be in real time shifting was a big selling point that I don't know if it ever does in the game. I really, I can't remember, but I feel like there's a part when you're running down into like those hellish steps and I think it starts to do it there, but yes. Yeah, when you're about to meet Bartlett and when you're about to fight the first boss battle, just literally when when you come out from the Grand Hotel basement into that room. Yeah, the hallway shifts. That's like the only part in the game that really happens and kind of locks you into a small hallway to get it done. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been cool to have like puzzle, half a puzzle be in A state and then next puzzle be in, you know, the C state or whatever. That was one of the big things. When they showed us the shift with the walls peeling and all of that, like I remember thinking like, they're not gonna be able to do this. And then I was like, God, that looks amazing. One of the things they picked up from the movie to be able to like see that happen. And I was like, God, that looks so cool. 
But and who knows? You know, you run out of time in developing, it becomes too cost prohibitive financially or even just within the game's parameters of what you could fit in the disc and the system memory and how all that stuff works. I don't know. But David had talked about that. We always thought that was cool. I don't remember if we ever wrote a puzzle for that, but it sounds so familiar to me that you bring it up. But I wish it had been. I think that had been very interesting. It's a fantastic looking effect. And in fact, I always hark back to the beta for Resident Evil 4, but that as well had a very similar thing, this filter where you had this kind of like blue misty world where you then had the main antagonist, Hookman, pursuing you with this like chained hook that he pursues you with. That was dropped actually, and they went with the Resident Evil 4 that we got for technical reasons because the GameCube at the time just couldn't handle it. You shouldn't have come back, Alex. Times are bad. People don't trust me anymore. I can't protect them. Protect them from what? What did you do? Something has come. Taken everyone away. You can't stop them. They'll get you too. Did you have predetermined plot points or other themes that had to be adhered to so as not to break serious canon or to link Homecoming directly back to previous installments? To what extent was the issue of serious canon discussed with Konami? Luckily, Patrick knew the canon very, very well, and so it wasn't too much of an issue to make sure we adhered to them, or at least we checked with the canon. Because there were always things, you know, it's there's a lot of vagary in this, you know, with a lot of like, well, maybe, maybe that's that person, maybe it's just a reference to that person. There could be things like that, but we always made sure to reference it, talk about it. Does this undo something from one of the other, uh, one of the other games? I mean, I was just looking at this timeline that we had as in this giant binder that I have. We've got the timeline. The timeline isn't of this game. The timeline is of the series, yeah, of which this game is a part. Um, so we had to make sure that that all went in there and like. You know, the creation of the order is in there. That's in there to make sure it doesn't conflict with something that we've written. So all that stuff always had to be considered. Sometimes it was considered and said, well, eh, you know, it's not too clear. So I think it's probably OK. But um, I don't even remember us having to go to Konami like they were the gatekeepers of all of it, because I think between Patrick and between John and between Bryant, like everybody, everybody knew it well enough to know whether or not we were on the right page with it. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you were all intrinsically following canon just uh, out of the knowledge and love of the previous games. Yeah. In the world of Silent Hill, like two, three, four, like if you really tried to see how they all sandwiched in together, there's things that they, you know, I mean, it's just the nature of how it works. Yeah. So you can get a little loosey-goosey with stuff. There's certain things you can't do. You know, obviously later on you bring a pyramid head, which was a very long conversation, but. Which I, yeah, I was going to say, I believe that we'll get into that in the very next question. <laughs> Wadney has quite a cool theory attached to this question. Uh do I though, really? <laughs> I'm ready. No, no, I love it. I love it. What is it? What was the reason for Pyramid Head's design returning for the Boogeyman? And how would you address criticism that as a representation exclusive to James Sunderland's psyche, its appearance in any other installment can never represent anything beyond fan service? Was this one of many elements deemed mandatory inclusions by Konami? And what side of the debate do you fall on? Patrick, is this where we put in the answer of uh, don't just trust us, it makes sense? Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. Number one, what is the fan response to Pyramid Head being in the movie? Because Sunderland's not in the film, but Pyramid Head is like, oh my God, everybody get in the church, here comes Pyramid Head, which it's like he's King Kong. I mean, it's really silly in the movie. I love the movie, by the way. I think the movie's very cool, but like that whole thing where it's like the siren and then he shows up and all the, I mean, like, so Konami obviously was like, we've got this iconic character from two. We're going to definitely put him in the movie because it's like such a cool visual thing. And then they've got to figure out how in the movie 
Kenobi, the people of the Order are like, bow down to the Pyramid Head. When truthfully, like in the game, Pyramid Head really should only be seen by Sunderland, right? Because that's the that's the character that we're living in the story. So that's just the reality of what they did. They just said, we're going to put Pyramid Head in the movie. So when it came to the game, as Chris mentioned, there was a lot of visual elements from the movie that we had to put in the game. Like the nurses, exactly the design from the movie, the falling ash, the way that the shifts work all came from what the film design was. All right, so now we get to Pyramid Head. First of all, yes, it's absolutely fan service. Um, but in my in my answer to, there are people who are going to believe it should only be tied to James Sunderland in a very purist way that is the case. I would argue that Pyramid Head can manifest as a element of a demon at Silent Hill when someone is so tormented that it's like, you know, you get a visit from, it's like Ebenezer Scrooge getting a visit mm -hmm. from the three ghosts. The, the three ghosts are not tied specifically to Ebenezer Scrooge. He's just getting them this time of year because he got to get his shit together. So we just had to make it like, now where, where it bothers me, and we didn't write this, is I always thought it was silly to have Pyramid Head kill the dad. It just is weird to me. The Pyramid Head should only be able to really kill Alex if we're going by the rule of that the demon manifests yeah. to someone who is tied to it. Alex is obviously going through this huge trauma. So I can make the case for, okay, well, Pyramid Head is chasing around. You see, like you said, mentioned two or three times. And I know it's like, well, Pyramid Head is doing for Alex what Alex can't do for himself, which is kill the father. But then that just means that like Pyramid Head could kind of like wander around and kill people at will, which I think is, it shouldn't be that way. I think it'd be better if Alex really had done it and not it manifest Pyramid Head and killing, but it was it was not a fight we could win. That was just my feeling on it. I think it was things like that. If Pyramid Head hadn't killed Adam, I think people would be less inclined to maybe not like it as much as they didn't because of, then it's like, I could buy that it's like haunting Alex. But if the fact of like, if Pyramid Head could do the bidding of Alex that he cannot do, I think it stretches it a little bit. So they brought him in, we made it work, and then they pushed a little bit with the, the death of Adam for whatever reason. Because it's like, he kills Adam and then it's like, now, now he's after me. I'm like, I don't know. This seems a little much in my opinion supposed to be some element of an emotional journey in the game and Pyramid Head is part of the character's emotional journey that really shouldn't be like slaughtering everybody else along the way. That was my feeling on it. Well, for the movie's lore, they connected Pyramid Head to the Egyptian god Anubis. And then in the Japanese guidebooks, they state that anybody could see Pyramid Head. He'll just have a different design based on who's seeing him. So I think it kind of works, him being in the game from that standpoint, as anyone can see him as a different design. Because looking at his design for Homecoming, he's carrying a big combat knife. Right. But again, that ties to Alex. It doesn't tie to yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I just like, that was my only thing with it. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, I'm the guy who came up with the idea of put, doing the pyramid head ending, having it go on Alex's head and you could play as pyramid head, which people, you know, I mean, it was, that was like one of the first pitches we gave. And I thought for sure they're never going to do that. And that whole scene at the end when it goes on Alex, but that really angered people because then it became like such a, like, then it became too real. It's like, do pyramid heads like anoint another pyramid head? I don't know. I thought it was cool, but it was kind of a silly idea. And then they went with it. And I was like, then you could play as pyramid head, but people were like, that's ridiculous. Why would that even occur? Like, we shouldn't even see that much of Pyramid Head. So I can't, uh, you know, whatever. I, I I could also say partly part of it was our fault for even suggesting that as an idea in the, in the game that ended up making in the game was that ending. So and you're still able to walk around in public without a bodyguard. I know. I know. It's great. Well, I don't go around telling people normally that uh, we're the guys that came up with the Pyramid Head ending. Uh, but but we, we described in the exact detail that they made it in. So it looked just like how we pictured it, which I thought was was pretty cool. Well, I personally found the ending to be badass. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. A lot of people really hated it. So yeah. I thought it was okay.
to go uh, back to a pyramid head killing Adam, Tom Hewlett did say that he believed that that was foreshadowing that ending because like every every boss you fought was one of the sacrificed kids, and if Alex got sacrificed or whatever, he would have became a pyramid head. So that been you know him killing Adam would be you know the foreshadowing of that ending. I think it's baloney. I mean, I love Tom, but he wasn't even there. I always had a theory when I played the game, Adam was being killed by Pyramid Head. I always had the theory that since Pyramid Head is known as the judge and executioner, he's there because somebody has sinned so badly that Silent Hill sent out the judge to carry out the executions. So part of me always thought that Adam did something in his life and knew that he had to kill one of his sons, hence why he had Josh as a backup just in case Alex didn't work. So part of his sins is probably what brought Pyramid Head over that also influenced with Alex and his suffering. And in return, Pyramid Head executes Adam and sets Adam free from his sins, in a sense, you know, because he was judged. The sin of Adam really, I mean, if you look at it from a perspective of from the Silent Hill sort of warped mindset, the reality is that when the founders broke off, this is going to get real nerdy, when the founders broke off from, from the <laughs> order, know. right, and they were like, okay, we're going to go, you know, whatever. We don't buy your whole baloney, but we're going to make our own baloney. And we're going to go across the lake. And in order to keep you at bay, we're going to create this sacrificial thing every 50 years. Chris pointed out that the 50-year thing is it's, it's cool. It sounds like it's a little like you can you can kind of be in the middle of it where you don't have to do anything. You're like, oh, I can I don't have to sacrifice <laughs> anybody. Like if you're like somewhere <laughs> stuck in the middle of that 50 years, like grandpa got away with not doing anything because he was born 25 years <laughs> in and, you know, whatever. So the numbers don't really work out. However, they go yeah. along, they they create this sect, they start this ritual, they found the Glen and they have to repeat this. And they obviously have to have two kids because they got to have boys to continue the line in the story of the shepherds, right? The idea is that they have Alex first, but they know they they can't just have one kid. They got to have someone else. And eventually, you know, Lillian can have a kid. And eventually she has Joshua. And then they're all happy about Joshua and they ignore Alex and hence begins his life of torment where he goes and accidentally does a thing, thereby ruining the sacrifice, right? Because it's not supposed to be that. And so Adam now realizes that, and I'm, I'm getting to what you're saying about how maybe I could buy that idea that as the executioner, because Adam is now trying to go back and like stop this thing from happening. So I guess in the Silent Hill mindset, they could be like, oh, that's one of the Shepherd's Gun people. Now they're trying to stop this. Meanwhile, the judge is trying to revive it. So Adam becomes a threat. So I guess if if the idea is that there's this roaming executioner in the form of Pyramid Head that's somewhat tied to the psyche of Alex hating his dad, but also is like sees Adam as a threat, that would be the only sin Adam would have done. Because in the world of Silent Hill, the sin of sacrificing the kid isn't really a sin. It's a it's seen as a sign of reverence, right? It's a yeah. The sacrifice is a positive thing in their sort of insane world. So um, Adam's sin at this point is basically going back to Silent Hill to try to stop it. In essence, trying to really save save his kid. So I could buy that. I could buy that as a as a version of why he kills Adam. I just thought it was so silly and the blood on him, and I was like, oh, this is like so. <laughs> just so, it's so not Silent Hill, right? It's so it's just like it's too slashery for me in my yeah. Opinion. Pyramid Head made the appearance here, and he's called the Boogeyman. We know he was supposed to like probably have a pursuer role, similar to like Nemesis from Resident Evil Three. But for all except for two scenes that were cut, were these scenes removed due to technical issues, narrative, mechanical reasons? What are your thoughts? Chris, you remember there's the first scene when Pyramid Head shows up down the hallway of the hotel. Where's the first time? Again, I'm so sorry. I forget the game. But there is a part where Alex sees Pyramid Head walk by the hall, right? Am I making that up? Yes, that's in the Grand Hotel. I mean, we'll come to it, so I'll be very brief. I think that's a fantastic survival horror location. The Grand Hotel is one of my favorite environments. Is that the first time we see Pyramid Head? Technically the second. 
That's the moment everybody went, what the heck? Well, he was in the movie, so here we go. Yeah, um, I mean, that's <laughs> the reason I, why, guys. That's that's the episode. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember there being more. I really think it was sort of a bit of like, hey, we're going to give you a little taste of this character you all like. We're going to put him in these couple things. And that was like, well, we have to have a reason for him. Let's, you know, add that into the ending and, and all those different things. It was, I don't think that there was more that was planned that got cut out. I don't remember where there was more. Do you know if there was? I was aware that he was planned for scenes in the hospital. And mm-hmm. when I play the game with headphones on, there are certainly sound effects. That, oh, there he is. There he is. He, he walks by my frame in the background. There's the Lego <laughs> pyramid head coming back. There's the Lego pyramid head. I love that. So cute. Oh, wow. I so I so need a Lego pyramid head in my life. I think on the cut map, there's a section that suggests that I think you can actually see him. I've got to be careful what I say now. You're just, come on, isn't there a room where if you look through the cell, like a hole in the cell wall, you can actually see him, let's just say, attacking. Oh, yes. Yeah, there is. That's right. Well, you may actually have some sort of internal demons that's causing you to see that. So that might just be you, that you're able to see it because of some horrible thing that you've Yeah, done. you ever think about that? Oh, man. Well, it's funny you say that. Honestly, I've been playing Resident Evil for years. And when I played home, I'm not just saying this to you guys. I'm not blowing smoke, well, blowing fog up your... Um, it really, <laughs> I said this to USS Command at the time because it was USS Command that suggested I, I play Homecoming. I was in my 30s then. And I was honestly, I'm turning around, really looking like checking behind me. And then I had to go and get one of... I've got a couple of Huskies. I had to literally get one of my Huskies and get her to sit on the couch next to me. I've got generally... Really like like because there were no major jump scares in the game, but just the whole the whole atmosphere was kind of just one huge kind of jump scare where I'm so uneasy. And I did, yeah, literally turn around. I don't know what I thought was going to be behind me, but just like that evil spirit. When he first played Homecoming, he messaged me randomly and told me Josh pushing the wheelchair down the stairway made him <laughs> shit himself, yeah. and I just replied with congratulations. <laughs> so I, it's very funny. I have I'm looking at. So here's what I can tell you from my, and again, I'm just going through digital files here. So there's Pyramid Head is in the opening nightmare scene, right? Kills the orderly, right? When they when you're getting wheeled around. After the opening cut scene where you see the future of all the kids getting their various demises, right? Pyramid Head is in that hospital scene, kills an orderly, and then you see the blade. I mean, that's how we scripted it, but I seem to recall that's actually in the game still. Yeah, it is. It is in the game, right? Okay, so there's that. And then there is, of course, the asylum where the dad is, and, and then Adam gets killed. And then there is the hotel. Yeah, right. So uh, let's see here. I'm looking at the hotel. It's dark. The player starts making his way to the door. The swarm starts pouring out from a hole, which Pyramid just poked through the ground. There was some stuff mentioned the Pyramid Head inside this hotel uh, level. Uh, there was a whole sequence here of the combat horror. I don't remember if you actually fight Pyramid Head in that moment. Um, so it, it has it in the Nightmare, the Asylum, the Church. There's a couple places where we had it in here. I'm finding four locations. I don't remember what made it into the game or not, but we wrote a bunch of Pyramid Head stuff. What is this thing? What did you do? Where's Joshua? No! 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 Is it correct that despite rumours to the contrary suggesting Homecoming was initially planned to be part one of a trilogy, an early concept on a three-game story arc culminating in an elemental battle to control Silent Hill between Joshua Shepard and Alessa Gillespie was nothing more than the usual production notes always penned at this stage exploring potential for sequels and is no indication that a trilogy was seriously planned at any stage? 
I think we'd love to know where this rumor came from. This sounds awesome. Yeah. I, by the way, I'm totally into like an Alessa Joshua fighting for a Silent Hill sounds fucking <laughs> cool. I wish uh, we had we, thought of it, but we no. heard about this in another interview and we were also like, wow, that sounds great. We, I mean, there may have been somebody else who batted this around, but no, we never heard anything about this one. And I have nothing in any of my documents that even mention Alessa in anything. So, okay. USS Command, if you had any light you could shed on that at all. No, I never could find the source <laughs> for it either. <laughs> Why don't we just tell people that it was us and then let them think that we did it? <laughs> During Homecoming's opening cutscene, we presumably witness Alex Shepard's admittance into a psychiatric hospital. Uh, yet the location transmogrifies to be Alcamilla Hospital. If so, are the entire events of the game preceding this scene taking place in Alex's mind whilst uh, he remains incarcerated, similar to protagonist Adam Farmer in Robert Cormier's novel I Am the Cheese, who likewise, unable to come to terms with a past trauma, plays out a delusional life around the grounds of the institution he's incarcerated in? I mean... Gold stars for using I am the cheese in a question. I mean, it hasn't come up since. Yeah, for Silent uh, Hill, too. In your high school as well. But but yes, yes, the entire thing is inside of his head. Man. The idea being that he, after Josh's death, he um, suffers a mental break. Yeah. He gets sent to the uh, asylum. He believes he's fighting the war, just like dad did. Which war? Eh, it's kind of unclear. Yeah. Um, but uh, the war. And so um, I do remember that there was a bunch, uh, I don't know how much this has got into the, the story, but like the cleverness we thought about in the um, the jacket, the fact that his jacket said shepherd on it, when it said like a shepherd on it or something. I, don't, I think it just said shepherd, but I think the idea that it was like a shepherd. And then we're like, oh, great. He'll think it's his own jacket, but really his father's jacket that he's wearing the whole time. But yes, that entire thing is inside of inside of his head. And Patrick, that initial opening scene, was that a whole level? Yeah, it was, so it was, it was a battle level, right? There was there was going to be a uh, there was going to be a war level, and it was going to end up with like a big shell shock moment that took you to the hospital. And then Brian Horton was like, and he, I think he had a good point, um, which is that at that point, like Call of Duty games, a couple of them been out. Uh, those were hot games, and he was like, we're never going to be able to in the time we have, mm -hmm. we're never going to make a war level as good as a game like that. So they just started with the sounds, and then Alex wakes up in the hospital scene. And so, and also yeah. like you go to play your silent Hill homecoming game and you're like in a war zone, right? So it was going to have I, monsters in there. It was, it was a cool idea, but just like, yeah. I agree. It just felt weird. It, it felt too. Like I thought I was playing silent Hill. Yeah. yeah. So it started with that level and we put a lot of, I mean, we had a lot of fun writing that like the baby incubators and all that stuff. That was all stuff that Chris and I put in our script, like the baby crying and opening up the incubators to find the crying stops. All that kind of stuff was, I think we had stuff we had written. That opening cut scene is the entire answers to the whole game. Are it all is. It's there. all there. It's all, it's, it's all there. All revealed. If you go back and watch it again, you're like, oh, here are all the answers. I didn't even need to play the game. Where's my squad? Are they here? Did they make it? Hey. Hey, talk to me. Say something. Oh, God. Oh, oh God. In the Silent Hill Book of Memories, a game file can be interpreted that Alex planned to run away and went to the lake at night to talk to Josh before leaving. The file reads, I'm sick of this. I give up. I will never be their perfect soldier. I hope at least my brother can be the son they wanted me to be. 
Was this the reasoning behind him taking Josh out so late? If not, what was your reasoning behind Alex's motivations that fateful night? So it's important to kind of go back to the relationship that Adam has with Alex, right? Because their plan always is to have two kids, right? That's the only way this whole cockamamie scam works. And so their all plan was always that, again, never this never shows up, but this is how we wrote this, that Adam and Lillian are going to disassociate themselves from Alex emotionally so that when they know the time comes, there's not as much pain. Because Adam ultimately like realized everything he does wrong and then he goes to try to stop this, right? In Silent Hill. So when Josh was born, they're elated, right? So now all of their time is thrown into Josh. Alex obviously never joins the military. Adam is this father who is a military father that constantly uses military things in his way he deals with his older son. So Alex basically just, at some point, there was no real inciting incident just in our story version. In the story, he just comes to the end of his rope that this is it, he's out. There's this like little radio show that Alex and Joshua do. Yeah which is was great. We wanted to give people the sense that Adam and Lillian did not love Alex, they loved Joshua, but Alex and Joshua loved each other. Josh, what are you doing? Relax, Dad. We're just making a radio show. Alex, go downstairs. Why? Just do it. Fine. Am I in trouble? No, of course not. Why are you yelling? I'm not yelling at you. Don't you think this is a little too silly for you? up like Alex, playing all this make-believe? I don't know. All right, from now on, just let Alex play with his own friends, okay? And if you need a friend, you come talk to me. We wanted yeah. it to be that Joshua was upset that Alex was going to run away, and that's why they end up together on that boat. And then, of course, it just mm. becomes a heated conversation. And there's, I mean, there's a couple of references, like, again, I'm not sure how much it reads, but like in Stand By Me, John Cusack and Will Wheaton have this great relationship. But the father is like so into Cusack and his ball playing and not understanding Will Wheaton's character as a writer, right? And so that definitely came from some of that stuff. And then, of course, like the boat thing, very much from ordinary people, right? So there's a great sort of finale. You know, you realize this whole thing that Timothy Hutton's dealing with his whole story is this tra trauma he's dealt with his whole life that he he did not feel like the love son and he ultimately lets, he doesn't save his brother on the boat and he blames himself for it. So those two things come into play in the story wise. But I think in that moment, there probably, to be honest, there isn't a really strong case why that night, what this was. I think we just, Alex at the rope, Joshua goes out with him and it just all goes wrong. And then what happens are two things. Alex splits off into this, this schism, hence we have a schism creature, um, right? So he's got this warped version of himself. And then at the same time, the plan with the, the shepherd's gun packed is fucked. Right. So those are the two things that occur there that change the direction for everybody's lives in the story. Adam and Lillian probably should have planned a little bit better and maybe done the sacrifice a little bit earlier just to give themselves like, you know, just a buffer. It's <laughs> yeah. true. And we also like talked about could they adopt? They can't adopt. It could be a bloodline. Like there was a lot of conversation about that. I was reading some of the in the guides that we have the things that I don't guess we wrote this that it was like that after uh, she had Joshua it doesn't say that she uh, couldn't have any more kids it says that she's barren and I do wonder if that's one of those like supernatural type things like you know it's not just mm. like they can't have more kids it's like there's some sort of an evil thing that has cursed her in not being able to have any more children because of because of their evil that she is a barren woman Easter eggs are there any to look for. Yeah, I mean, it's God, I funny. There's a, ton. there's a ton, but really? you guys have noted 
you noted some things that were ended up on the game files that never made into the game. So, you know, we had the Walter tapes. We wrote those mm -hmm. and put them in the game, which was like a very cool thing. You could only access it if you knew how to get into the gold disc and start to pull apart the files. And people were like, what's this Walter thing mean? It wasn't anything. We just thought it'd be funny if you found Walter Sullivan tapes of his like little boy voice in the thing. And I think we mm. we were there when they recorded. I was like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I hope they use it. And then they just like they just run out of time and it's not essential. What do you want to tell your mommy? Why won't you wake up, mommy? Is your mommy sleeping, Walter? Show me your heart. Show me your heart! And didn't all those all those audio files? They're all there. That's how people knew about them because they could right. hear the audio on the disc when they deconstructed right. the disc. But then you can't play it in the game. Yeah, I think at one point they did some level of demo where they were playing it and trying to figure out bugs or whatever, and just this voice saying every single thing. I'll walk over here now. I have to open this door. <laughs> yeah, we had all that right. What's that over there? It was just like oh, it was in infuriating. And so they just got rid of it and had a little you know the text coming up. But it all just lived there, and then we found out that it was actually on the disc and it still existed. But, I mean, we wrote so many things. I mean, there is – I mean, I don't even know if they're Easter eggs because some things made it in, some things didn't. Some things got turned in. I think that those journal entries were supposed to be in the game, and that became something on, like, the website or on the blog. Some of it ended up in the player's guide. And there were things that we wrote that they would just say, oh, we need this, 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 and then they wouldn't use it. And we'd be like, oh, well, it's, it's just more flavor. And I, I think what that really did is that we had such a grasp on the world by the time we were done. I mean, now 15 years later, we've forgotten some of it. But at the time, like we could tell you really anything that happened and get into the depth. And we were talking earlier about the difference between writing a film and writing a, a video game. I mean, that's the thing is you write a film like you might have some of these ideas for, for the world, but you don't ever get into all those details. And here we got to create so much stuff. The amount of detail in the two Alex Shepard diaries, there's, there's like an abridged version, as always, that we got in Europe and in America, it's, it's far more detailed. Just all, all the details about the, the, the founding families, Alex's break from reality, his entire missions that he goes out on and his combat unit and, and injuries, it, it's incredible, actually, just testament to your dedication, the writing. And it's such a shame that it didn't make it into the game, but it's still there. Yeah, there's, there's an enormous amount of backstory that, that can really be enjoyed by the fans. The diaries also, there was stuff. So you mentioned that later on, like when we started writing the diaries, that was part of the thing, like, hey, we're going to have these things released like weekly leading up to the game on the website. And so we picked the three people, L Wheeler and Alex, because we thought these are characters characters that the PO, their POV is going to come very prominent in the game versus like any of the other, the mayor and any of the characters that like are not really we're going to follow. And so you see there's a character's name, Clint in Elle's diary at the library. Like these were all characters we actually had written for the game. Like there was going to be a library thing and there was going to be like we had a guy named Bill Rooney who ran a newsstand. We did write Jeannie who wrote, ran Solar. So Solar, the cafe is actually a cafe that was a real cafe in Hollywood called Solar de Coenga where you meet a lot and work on writing. So we named the cafe Solar. I was looking back at some of the things like we used our friends' names and all kinds of things. Like there is apparently a press release for like the 150th year celebration of Shepherd's Glen. It's written by a guy named Scott Milner. That's one of Chris's buddies from high school. Unintended consequence, Solar de Coenga on Coenga Boulevard. If you follow Coenga Boulevard north into the valley, what neighborhood do you hit? 
Oh, you have to look alike. You do have to look alike. That's right. There you go. So, oh wow, I was looking at the stuff. We forgot we wrote these. I don't even know if they put them in there, but you can. We had like a bunch of books that were like Man in the Iron Mask and the Lottery, like things that really tied into. And we put a book in there called A Warm Hello, which is a book written by a friend of ours. So, (laughs) like, if if anybody found that, like, we would tell Dylan, your book is in our game. I don't even know if they ever had that in there, but we we tried to put some fun little things in places like that. I don't think we were just doing it in a vacuum. I feel like all that stuff was in our contract. And no, they were at, we needed environmental stuff, so we just they filled it had, with, yeah. They had said, like, hey guys, we need journals, we need these things, we need those things. It wasn't just us, like, just like thinking, <laughs> oh, let's add some more stuff. Like, they're like, we need all this, and then some of it was like, well, we didn't really end up needing that, so we'll put it in this other place. So, regarding those gruesomely individualistic sacrifices, a signature feature of the series is upheld wonderfully in Homecoming, with the main enemy creatures having the children's fate and suffering reflected back into their design. How much input did you have in shaping the themes and direction of the creature designs? That was really Brian Horton and John Manley. What we did do is at one point, and this might have been for the player's guide, we wrote up descriptions of each of the creatures and what they represented. But a lot of that was, I mean, Brian Horton, you know, creating those creatures and knowing like asphyxia is going to be, you know, the air creature and it's going to be this thing, you know, the hands over the mouth and all that. We would write the descriptions to add the metaphors in there just to make sure because some of the things, some of the creatures were just kind of cool. I mean, the main bad guys were very tied to the sacrifices, but some of them were just kind of like cool monsters. So we would think, say, well, okay, well, maybe maybe smog means this. Um, and we try to connect it in some way to a demon metaphor, something in their own psyche. But yeah, the designs themselves, that was, that was all those guys, and they did an incredible job. They are creepy as hell. Out of all the monsters, which ones is your favorites? I think Scarlet. Oh, yeah. I think that the creepy, but also because it's like move in different ways, but then also the textures, the fact that there was like the porcelain and the blood, like it's not something you see a lot. You know, it wasn't just like a scaly or bulbous or like, you know, whatever. It was just like to have like a bad guy that was like porcelain, like that was very, very eerie. I said, I'd I'd go with Scarlet. I'm not surprised Scarlet was a fan favorite. I mean, that was actually one of the first things they did design-wise. Like, they spent a lot of time on that. It was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. It was very different. People going crazy about the section in Resident Evil 7, the uh, house Beneviento section with all the dolls. And, I mean, you guys were doing it years before with the Scarlet section, years before house Beneviento. One of my favorite scenarios, as, as you say, extremely creepy. Scarlet's doll. I take it back. I'm looking through the book now. Feral dog. Feral dog. <laughs> Feral dog. Wasn't even from our. Wasn't even from our. <laughs> I thought Siam looked really neat, but I think as far as just like a, a boss, Scarlet was pretty cool. And I think the, the Scarlet's the Fitch story was probably the cleanest of all the murders yeah. of the. It, 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 you know, didn't we see a Siam costume at Comic Con pretty early on? It's something that's makeable, but still looks very impressive to see. Homecoming detractors still give credit to the fact that not just the bosses, but as a collective in the series, it really is a series highlight. The design and the movement—it's it's very of all it's, the bosses it's gorgeous the design. It's a beautiful design. Yeah, 
You're very kind, PJ. In our back and forth communications, you mentioned that this was a great question. I want to apologise before I read it out because it's rather long and it did actually start life as at least three questions, two from Rodney, one from myself, and kind of we've squeezed them into one. During a relatively fractured development, significant content was removed, including cast and more detrimentally to the overall narrative, plot points and character motivations. Extensive promotional material mentions Elle's father, a restaurant named Solo, we we said before, owned by Janine and her husband, town library, Bartlett's mansion, a grocery store, apartment complex and high school. A sawmill belonging to the Wheelers when they were going to be a fifth family was also removed. And I know Rodney wanted to ask whether there was any plan for the particular way that their child would have been sacrificed, the Wheelers. And a mine section was also designed all as concepts, but did not make it to the final build. It's clear from the size and nature of this content that the team were both ambitious and sincere fans of the series. Of the many characters and their narratives fated to the cutting room floor, what removal was most harmful that you would have wanted to have remained? I don't know that there's anything that was really harmful, but I would say, yes, of of all those things that the sawmill, when they told us about that was probably the one that kind of broke my heart and I got over it and I understood it. But I remember that at the time having five families, five sacrifices, five worlds you're going to go to, it was just so clean. And that like number five worked so well. And then when they're like, no, it's not going to be four. I was like, what? Like, and then it's like, well, what about Wheeler? It's like, well, Wheeler's just going to be the sheriff. And it was like, okay. I mean, it ultimately worked out fine. But I remember in that moment, that was probably the biggest thing that I heard that thought, this is going to mess everything up. How are we going to get around this? Most of the other stuff, losing a character here or there, like losing the library, grocery store, things like that. I don't remember some of these like apartment complex or high school. I don't remember having those, but I do remember the library having some of these other smaller characters in there. They were kind of giving us information and that's okay. But I do remember that the sawmill was kind of a heartbreak at the time because it also, we had some concept art from it and oh, it looked so cool. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at it. The mine, if we remember correctly, was really just in the demo. That's all Um, I remember the mine. Yeah, it wasn't really in the game itself. And they never really built much for the sawmill. I feel like that was one of the, they kind of kept pushing that one to the end. And eventually, like, we came back from something and we're like, hey, how's the sawmill coming? And they're like, got some bad news, guys. Uh, Four families now. And we're like, what? The sawmill was going to be after you crashed the boat in Toluca Lake. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to wake up at the sawmill and it was going to be the Wheeler family. They were still the sheriffs, but I'm looking at the design document for the sawmill. So it was going to be fire was going to be the. Oh, right. I had a thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll read you the description. As Alex slowly wakes from the boat crash, he can barely see what looks like an old sawmill off in the distance. With Elle nowhere to be found, he heads there to look for her. The fog is thick and ever-present. Alex must explore the hazardous structure while fighting off various demons. A nightmare shift turns the already dangerous building into an even more hellish place. If Alex can stay alive long enough, he ultimately meets up with an ungodly fire-themed monster. Defeating it will uncover the mystery of the sheriff's missing artifact that will be partially buried in the ashes. When we came on board, they were going to find Adam's ring was going to be in those ashes. That's according to my revelation chart. I've got this revelation chart that paths the action. So after Toluca Lake, Alex was going to, the fear of Alex, Alex has this fear of water, right? That's part of the theme right there. So he has to retrieve this crest. And then in the sawmill was going to find his dad's ring. And that was going to take him to the Alcamela hospital where he runs into dad and says, I found your ring, asshole. And then Pyramid Head, Jason Voorhees stabs him. (laughs) Dad, I found your ring. What's this? A ring? In the ash? Dad, what is this? What does it mean? <laughs> yeah. Stab, stab, stab. Yeah. 
<laughs> a, lot, a lot of Alex being very confused about everything that's clearly yes. in front of his face around. What's him. happened here? Where am I? What is happening here? What's like, going on? As usual in Silent Hill, people seem to be like just slightly nonplussed about the state of their town. <laughs> oh, it's foggy and there's no one around and I can't get any food. What the fuck's going on? And then people giving them very cryptic answers. Everyone's left. Well, that does okay. Well, where are they? I don't know. <laughs> I just think that's great because it just kind of adds to that kind of ethereal. Of course, it, yeah. it does. It's the vibe. We make, make fun of it. It's just the vibe of the game. And we tried to like not lean into some of that stuff. We tried to give it a little more. <laughs> like there's a scene in there with Lillian and Alex, and I remember we wrote it a bunch of times when he first comes home, and she's so catatonic because she knows the shit that's going down. Adam's gone back to Silent Hill. Yeah. And so we started writing that scene and it was like, we didn't want it to feel like so annoying where you're like, Jesus lady, just talk to me. <laughs> Alex actually, of all the protagonists, I believe in the Silent Games, plays it more straight than most of them. He, he's like not so lost in the fog. His head is like somewhat clear, which I think works because he's actually really crazy. But there's mm -hmm. a part in there when, and I remember Marwan was like, love this line where he's like, I know about Silent Hill. And then she yells at him, you don't know anything about Silent Hill, which I thought it was a pretty cool line. But in that whole thing with her, we actually think of the dialogue tree had a thing where it's just like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like a really like specific <laughs> question that was like, just so the audience could be like, yeah, seriously, can you just please give me a straight answer or whatever? So. Yeah. I know all about Silent Hill. You don't know anything about Silent Hill. I, I know dad went there. He went to go fight something. Did he go to get Joshua? Is that where Josh is? God damn it, tell me! For me, it was the first Silent Hill game I'd played, and that opening section, just all of Shepherd's Glen, and then with the track Terminal Show playing, which is just fantastic. I mean, right up there with some of the most iconic save room themes from, from Resident Evil, the mystery behind why I'm not including the paintings, and it really did evoke the same kind of emotion and immersion that I got when I was walking into the RPD for the first time. All of that section and the whole Grand Hotel scenario and the game files that you wrote and the character of the woman whose memories you're trying to find with the Polaroids, absolutely fantastic. Real highlight for me is, as a survival horror gamer. Now you know who that is, don't you? you know who that's supposed to be? The woman you're trying to find? That's Lillian. It's like another version of her. So she was having an affair with the mayor? Yeah, because again, like Lillian wasn't wasn't able to have a kid, right? So there was all kinds of weird things that oh, wow. there's a big difference between age difference between Alex and Joshua. So the idea being that like maybe Lillian, maybe she was like not being super faithful to Adam. Maybe she blamed him for not being able to have a kid. So there's all kinds of little themes like that in there. So we always saw that as that's like basically like a more motherly version of Lillian that Alex wished he had. Oh, wow. Because she has a um, thing in there where she says you have a kind voice. Yeah. By the way, does any, can anybody know the reference to the movie that's from? It's from Exorcist 3. When George C. Scott visits the woman in the hospital, she says you have a kind face to him. And I always thought that was a great thing because ultimately she ends up becoming one of Legion and like crawls on the wall later on. When we wrote that scene, I always kind of imagined it being that same kind of woman. She can't see his face. So I said, you have a kind voice. I just sort of reworked the line. No one comes to visit anymore. Who are you? I wish I could remember. What are you doing in this hotel? This place should be condemned. I can't leave. I lost something once dear to me. Now all I have is memories of the past, but I don't know where they are. Three small windows of better days. You'll know when you see them. Okay, I'll look around. You have a kind voice. <laughs> 
we've mentioned about the various ways that the shepherds disengage, you know, emotionally. A member of our team that was unfortunately unable to be with us this evening, Jill Vallenfield, she kind of had a slightly different take and wondered whether this disengagement was actually the shepherd's way of distancing Alex to protect him and excluding him from the evil Silent Hill influence. And she also mentions how the children that were sacrificed were given mementos, whereas it wasn't Alex, the chosen sacrificial child that was given the memento, the father's ring, but in fact, it was given to Josh. For example, with Silent Hill 2, she says you can interpret various ways. Different interpretations can be made by different game players. It was always going to be that Alex was going to be the sacrifice. And then Josh, okay. that was always, always the case. And that's why they, they were not trying to protect Alex. They were just trying to protect the interests of the town. And this is how they're going to do it. And then when he messed up the timeline for them, Adam changes his whole, you know, he knows he's got to do something. Meanwhile, Judge Holloway's like, shit, we fucked this up. I got to go back, get the order back again. I got to do whatever I can to save, save us. You know, everybody's got these motivations all based on the fact that like the pact has not been honored because there's no sacrifice. It passes by the 50th anniversary. And then and they're all kind of screwed. But I do have a question. When you all saying that they should have sacrificed Alex sooner, would they sacrifice at the beat set for a certain time or can they do them whenever they want? A great question. That's a great You know what? This is where we say, what do you think? It's all cool. Yeah. What was your, <laughs> what's your favorite? What's your favorite idea? I don't know. There wasn't really like, you just had yeah. to make sure it got done within the 50 year window. Uh, it may have been, it had to be on that date. It says every 50 years. That's what I'm saying. Set an alarm in the morning, wake up first thing, or was this the night before? Maybe, maybe it had to be on that day. And so they were waiting to like mm -hmm. Thursday sacrifice is happening. And then like Alex goes out on a Tuesday night out on the lake, screws it all up. Suspicious for the other siblings. So everyone dies on the same day from various <laughs> random accidents. Everyone's like, hey, did your uh, your brother die? Yeah. Oh, my sister died. Huh. When? Monday? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Nora died. It's weird. <laughs> All five of us? No, four of us. It's been changed. It's four of us now. Okay. When Curtis Ackers takes Alex's gun, teasing him, you must have stole this from your daddy. Is he foreshadowing Alex's breakdown with the theft of his father's military vocation that forms his delusion? He even seems to suspiciously glance at the combat jacket Alex wears belonging to his father, remarking, military man, now I see, perhaps with a hint of sarcasm, as Curtis knows more than he's letting on. Yeah, I think he knows that Alex was not in the military, and he's saying that. But I do like the the oh. theft of his of his father's military vocation, the theft of his father's identity. That was not mm. intended, but I'm going to steal that because I think that's great. The idea that he's like that is foreshadowing the theft of that because that's what he's done is taken his dad's um, oh cool persona basically. Patrick and I were talking about this before. Actually, I couldn't really remember exactly if Curtis knows that he's not really in the military, but I think that line, military man, now I see, I, I mean, it kind of suggests that that's exactly it, that like, yeah, Curtis knows the truth. I know some fans found it objectionable, this twist at the end, but again, you know, you've got to take this in terms of the experience as a first time player going through that story for the first time. I, I think it's a great underlying layer to the narrative and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a kind of a great twist. It, it made complete sense contextually, adds that extra emotional depth and, and punch. Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, kind of the fun of it. There, there's supposed to be a little bit of like, you know, uh, what's the Mickey Rourke? Angel Heart, Angel Heart. You know, there's a little bit of that about realization, right? Okay. So. Another movie that was brought up a lot, a lot, a lot, um, which I think I watched it because of this game at the time was Session 9. That was called, Patrick? Session yeah, 9? Yeah, Session 9. Oh, okay. And yeah. that was brought up a lot in terms of mood and tone and reveals. And, and it's a great, great movie. And that yeah. that was a huge inspiration. I yeah. mean, Jacob's Ladder, for sure. I mean, that's awesome. a huge part of just... That's like the go-to for it was all in your head. 
By the way, there's a great a little little side note. Curtis has a, a line in there when he he says you could trigger a thing where he says, "How about I just take this thing? He take the gun or whatever." And then Curtis says, "How about I slap you and kill you?" <laughs> I always laugh. That made me laugh out loud. It probably shouldn't have done. That. Okay, so a buddy of mine, Tim Guth, <laughs> he, unfortunately has died a couple of years ago. He was at my high school. He was at a McDonald's in downtown Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, and some guy came around like selling watches in the McDonald's. This is like a real rough area of downtown Chicago. He's like, I'll, I'll say this watch for like, I don't know, 10 bucks. And one of the kids at the table was like, how about I give you $10 and I just take all the watches? And then the guy said to him, how about I slap you and kill you? And then he walked away. <laughs> and, and they and they constantly said that in high school. So we, we gave it to Curtis. And I, oh, that's great. That's when it so came funny. out, I said it to Tim. I was like, your line is immortalized in a video game. I just literally laughed out loud when I just slap you and kill you. And it's the way he did the voice actor delivers it. He well, did a really good job. How about I yeah, slap you? I wish I'd been there to witness it in real life, but it was a legendary story. <laughs> Haven't you noticed that every single clock in this town has stopped at exactly 2.06? Have you ever tried fixing them? Kid, I can fix just about anything you put in front of me. But I've never seen anything like this. There's no reason they're not working. It's like there's something causing it. We were speaking before about links back to previous Silent Hill games. I want to know, are the transitions initiated by the Shepherd's Glen deity projecting the other world at will, or are they Alex's projections of his own madness on the environment around him, similar to Alessa Gillespie? I think it's important to note that the, the shifts that are happening in Shepherd's Glen are tied directly to the fact that the pact is over and Silent Hill is taking over, right? In, in our version of this, the 150 years that have been protected by the pact, there's no shifts going on in Shepherd's Glen. Like, there, it's just not because the evil of Silent Hill exists within the bubble of Silent Hill. Mm. And, and now that has been, comes across the lake and is now here. So I think the shifts are more not reactionary to Alex. They are more reactionary to the fact that like, it's supposed to just show you that the, it's encroaching upon this and eventually like, you'll be swallowed up in it. That's sort of how I saw the shifts is happening. Cause they're not, they're fairly like, they're random. They're not like, they don't tie to any necessarily every single moment Alex has some kind of revelation or whatever. They just, they kind of happen just because you want to, mix up the gameplay at some point and get into some other world, you know, some sea state stuff. Yeah. Okay. In a promotional material, James Wheeler makes no references to other police officers in Shepherd's Glen besides himself, but we do see a dead police officer in the Order's Lair towards the end of the game, and a crashed police car outside of Shepherd's Glen's police station. This police station is also described by Wheeler as being empty and abandoned in, besides him in the promotional material, yet when we play as Alex in that area, we find tons of mutilated corpses all over the place. Is this a case of both James and Wheeler seeing different versions of the fog and other world? You mean the promotion materials? You mean the we mean Wheeler's blog? Yeah. By the way, how how ahead of time we're about how Wheeler is a conspiracy theorist, thinking that your cell phone's recording you all the time, and that uh, actually know. that's actually really a thing. <laughs> we willed that into reality by writing that into our <laughs> blog. And, and some of those bits in there, some of those conspiracy theory bits, I got from I went camping. I think it was up by Mount Shasta in California, and there was a guy who had set up camp next to me, and he'd, he'd been there a while. <laughs> he'd been camping in the world for a while. He just wanted somebody to talk to. So he came over and started talking to me and he started telling me all sorts of things. And I remember that was the the chemtrails. He was the guy that told me about the chemtrails in the sky. And I was sort of thinking like, God, this guy's got a lot of 
a lot of things he's telling me about. And some of those made that into the into the blog there. But in terms of the, I think, Patrick, you were talking about like Wheeler is basically the last law enforcement officer alive. He right? is. I mean, you mentioned things specifically. We wrote these blogs, man, March 2, 2008. So it was pretty far along. And I mean, the game came out in 2009. So we had been pretty far into it. The fact that they put dead bodies in the station probably isn't because anybody was really reading the blog, you know, whatever. There's like, it's gonna be cool, put some dead bodies in the station. I would love to say that we were all this hive mind that like, okay, the guys wrote a thing about in the blog and now it isn't. So like, there's no real reason that it has anything to do with what we wrote in the blog that ties to anything in the design. We just knew that Wheeler was gonna be this kind of lone gunman left behind who felt compelled to protect the town. Anybody there who could have helped them was gone or died or whatever. We would assume some had joined the order, right? So some had left to go off with the judge, assuming law enforcement knows the judge of the town, you know? It's a good question, though, because there's times when we say, well, you know, that was just a thing that, you know, they're just dead bodies, doesn't really connect. But there are other times when these things really were very well thought out and did have very clear connections or things that we're like, oh, that's going to be an Easter egg for that later on. So there are times when it really was like, oh, that was always the intention. So it's, it's a good question. In this case, I think it was one where it was more kind of coincidence. In terms of the world that you both created, would you like to think that in-game characters would have different visions of the same location? Oh, no, I mean, I didn't see it as being, and you know, I, other people could disagree, but I, I didn't see it as being like different people. Patrick disagrees. Um, different <laughs> people would see different things because I feel like if Alex is fighting um, Smog or Needler or something like that, and L came running in, I think she would see the same thing that he saw. He's manifesting that thing and it's coming to life. It's his demon, but I think she would still see it. But yeah, I suppose it's 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 possible. But I liked the idea that these people were each creating their own creating these realities, but then they actually physically existed and other people would see the same. Aside from, you know, the large amount of crazy people we have in the story who, you know, who knows what Lillian's seeing, you know, she's just, she's probably seeing a playground in the summertime. <laughs> you mentioned Deputy Wheeler and just one last question from Jill Vallenfield. Unfortunately, it would have been 4am for her in Italy and she had work the next morning. That's so, no excuse. Uh, yeah, sounds yeah, like I she know, doesn't care. I know, but she, no, she definitely wanted to get questions in because she was playing through Sunday Hill Homecoming all night as preparation. Yeah. Deputy Wheeler, he mentions in his dialogue, he references a cop from Brahms that went missing in Silent Hill, just like the first game introduced. In the canon of the Silent Hill 1 ending, Sybil didn't survive. Did you plan to feature her in some way in the Silent Hill Otherworld that we see represented in Homecoming, but then perhaps this idea was scrapped? Perhaps it was like a, just a little reference in lore for the fans? So I have that script. When I decided to move east, I looked at a job in Brahms, worked for the police. I did the time they had a cop. I don't remember her name. She had gone on Silent Hill. I'll ask what happened to her. She says, no one knows. They only found her bike outside of town, but I heard rumors about the people living there. Okay, so yes, it absolutely is. This is like, again, Wheeler is not supposed to like, He's an outsider. His boss, the sheriff, has disappeared. He's left this deputy. So the deputy's just like a guy who took a job in this town. He went to Brahms and he's like, they disappeared in Silent Hill. And now, now they're on the boat to Silent Hill. And in the Wheeler's just never, he doesn't know anything about the pact or any of that stuff. All he knows is like, weird shit goes on on Silent Hill. I remember a cop disappeared. I wasn't really into it. So I came to Shepherd's Glen. But it absolutely is a reference to that. It just was just trying to connect the dots to the realities of the world. I don't think there was ever an intention to bring her into the game, no. but it was definitely a connection to that. But I have it as a, I have it oddly enough, it's like a separate script and I don't know why that is. Again, I'm trying to solve my own mystery. I'm like memento. I'm trying to understand what I wrote. <laughs>
but we wrote it in 2007, so it was something very early on, and it is in the IGC as well at some point. So yeah, so obviously that was that's a direct reference, but no, there was never a point to bring her in. I think also that whole Sybil story was pretty prominent in the movie, so they wanted to make sure that we were tying anything back to the movie since they had made a much larger story of Sybil in the film that had been really in the game, quite frankly. I do want to add one thing. Sybil isn't actually dead chronologically. That's just left up to the players. Well, okay. So it's so funny you mentioned that because I have that in my notes. Um, they noted that to us about <laughs> Sybil. Um, that, ah. Let me see if I can find it for you guys. Were they telling us that we got something wrong? Make fun of me hanging on to all my things, and here I go. Make fun of you for hanging on to digital files. That's acceptable. So in the Silent Hill Church Hellshock, they called Hellshock was like the other world and just our internal language. How do you know you need to run from Pyramid Head instead of trying to fight him? Won't the player constantly try to fight him and constantly get killed? These are just notes, just design notes, everybody. So in referencing the movie, have we thrown out the mythology of the original game, i.e. Sybil was not killed in the church in Silent Hill game? So obviously they had known that the movie had done a different version of Sybil in the movie versus what was in the game. So obviously they were going to throw that out because, you know, in the movie, she's what she's burned alive, right, in the church or whatever. Yep. So we we decided the movie would become the big factor. So I guess that's sort of maybe why we wrote that addendum where they're like, well, let's reference her and just say Wheeler had heard about her. They found the bike and she went to Silent Hill and then she was just never seen again. This is very Konami. This document looks very much like Bill's notes to us and to the team just for stuff. Because it says like, player should not realize it's El Camilla or any immense hospital, just a hospital in general. Like there's just a lot of things where they're like, these are sort of bigger, what we would call network notes, because they're not all specifically tied to script. They're tied to gameplay. So this is where like they would watch it and they would go, these are our, our comments based on like how we want to present the canon, what we're going to take from the movie. So mm. yes, that eventually that would be notes that had come from Konami. And that would have been Bill at the time. This is before Tom. When I decided to move east, I was looking at a job in Brahms, working with the police. At the time, they had this cop. I can't remember her name, but she'd gone to Silent Hill. Well, what happened to her? No one knows. I found a bike outside of town. But I'd heard rumors about the people who lived there. Let's just say they're not too friendly to people who don't share their beliefs. Concept art for Dr. Martin Fitch has his original surname as Turner. So why this change? And did he have a different biography in the concept stage? Uh, I don't believe he had different biography. I think we were talking about this and we changed the name maybe because Turner wasn't cool. <laughs> I do remember Fitch had more of an edge to it, but that happens all the time. You you start with things and you've got names yeah. and maybe it's named after your buddy. And then, you know, we've had times before where they're like, hey, this is all good. And then they're like, uh, we, we wrote a, a horror film called Beneath and it all took place in the... Now I can't even remember what the name of the, the mine was originally. Bra bracket Energy. We took it from Halloween. There was an original name that we wrote, and they, they did like an S&P clearance thing, and there was a company with that name. Oh, that's right. I don't remember that. We had it a while. We had an, another name, Dunham or Durham or something. And it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a coal mine. It wasn't an energy company, but it was another company that like did logistics or something. So we came up with Bracket. So for this one, I don't remember what the reasoning was, but that does happen that a lot of times with names. We also had a, um, a movie wrote called Bugs and we had written in, you know, the whole SWAT team had names of our friends and they brought in a different writer and he changed it all the names. His buddies. Probably to his <laughs> friends. And so we still go back. We're like, 
you know, those were all our friends' names that we could like tell them, hey, you know, we, we got your name yeah. in there. Right. But yeah. uh, <laughs> so I don't remember what this one was, but my, yeah, we're guessing it's probably just because Turner was just like, didn't have much of an edge to it. And Martin Fitch just gives it a little it bit. It does more. sound, yeah. That's more like a slicey dicey guy. Yeah. yeah I, do have, I do have the documents that <laughs> yes. say it was, I have the MDDs that say Turner on them and they all say old. So we knew it was the wrong one not to follow. Right. <laughs> Initially, Joshua Shepard's name was Matthew Shepard. And we were like, you guys cannot call this kid that's going to, we can't call Matthew Shepard, obviously. Like, they had not even thought about the poor man who'd been bullied and then murdered. Uh, It happened like 10 years earlier, but I'm like, but that name Matthew Shepard just stuck out. Like, it just was a thing. You knew it was horrible. And it was like, the story is already horrible enough, right? We're talking about family genocide and we're talking about all these betrayals and stuff. It's like, uh, maybe you just shouldn't call Matthew Shepard. And and there's no ill will on their part. They just, that was the name they had. They never once made that connection. And I think that they hadn't been saying the name together a lot. I think it was always Alex Shepard, Adam Shepard, Alex's little brother, Matthew. Yeah. And I think that they mm. hadn't really said the name together. And we came yeah. on, we started saying, we're like, Matthew Shepard, that, that, wait, you can't that, use that, that name. that's his name? And they're like, oh, you're right. And then it was like, as usual, what's, what's a name that sounds haunting and biblical? And, you know, we probably went through Gabriel and uh, Isaac and all those names before we came mm. on, on a Joshua. It was obviously for the better. It wouldn't have been right. In unused audio files from Homecoming. Order soldiers are heard discussing their faith and beliefs. They refer to the Lord with male pronouns. Was this removed because the Order's God is depicted as female? Was it originally conceived that the sect of the Order was a sect of Atali, or was that of worship of Samuel, or a new God, given that it's a reinformation of the Order not possessing the original text? This is a very, I mean, this is a real deep dive. You're welcome. <laughs> the answer is yes. Those voices you hear on those files, some of that is Chris and I. I had a feeling. <laughs> and also and also the other voice actor who did uh, Dr. Fidge. It's interesting. When we wrote, yes, it is a new order, right? It's Judge Holloway's new order. I think when we started writing, so we just wrote that in his name, so shall it be, was not really an intentional thing to be like, whether they're talking to the sort of Silent Hill God, which I guess you're right, is female, is depicted as female, which I guess we probably weren't really, I mean, someone must have been paying attention to it, but they were okay with it. So it's supposed to just be like, this is a new order, brand new, they revived and they're under this Judge Holloway thing and whatever is their version of it, that's what they talked about. I don't think it was removed because that was somehow did not work with whatever the, what we're talking about here, that it somehow didn't fit with the with the rules. Because again, and I maintain that in Silent Hill, you can kind of get away with, because there's so many sects, there's so many different leaders over the course of several games, different people have run different things. Um, they probably just didn't put it in because they thought we didn't want to have this dialogue. I feel like they still left in a couple of lines from the coal mine order guys running around. Like, I don't know, there he is. They, they, I think they still left some of that stuff in, but I don't know what the intention was behind it, but I don't think it was because of this gender issue with the with the God name. Probably because of our bad performance. It might've been because of the lousy acting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably true. I mean, maybe, who knows? They might have been like, hey, man, this, uh, it's, it's a lady god. And then you're like, okay. And that may be the case. But I, anything we wrote for these characters, we always deemed as being like new lore because they are new people. So they could, in essence, kind of, we could be whatever we want it to be. Because in the town hall, we have all that in his name, so shall it be. That's kind of on every every single thing. That's how it ends at the end of every, the master of arms decree or whatever it has in his name, so shall it be. 
a lot of these are USS Command's questions getting very, very super nerdy. I love um, it. I love it. I mean, like we were very nerdy at the time doing it, but it's funny. I never picked up on that. So it's an interesting point. So I'm just giving you my best guess as to why I got pulled. I've got another USS Command question here. Shepherd's Glen Cemetery, named Rose Heights Cemetery, is alternatively identified as Milburn Cemetery when viewing a player's Xbox. Gamer tag. It's crazy. USS Command. Wow. What, what was the reason for this name change? <laughs> now, Patrick, is Rose Heights Cemetery a cemetery that you know? Because Milburn Cemetery is the cemetery in not my hometown, but a town near me. And so Milburn Cemetery is definitely something. It was like the old, old, creepy cemetery that you would drive past. That's clearly a name that I came up with. I wonder if we named it, but then it got renamed and then something just got messed up. In my non-journal stuff, we have Rose Hill Cemetery. By the way, this is clever. Did we come up with it? For Curtis Akers, his place was called Acres of Junk. Did anybody know that's what it's called? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> is that in the game? I don't know if they made that sign, Acres of Junk. I've not seen that in the game. Yeah. We also had a Johnny Z's bait and tackle. Johnny Z is a friend of mine. I don't remember Milburn at all. That can't be a coincidence because that's a cemetery that we used to drive by. So that's something I must have come up with. It's not in any of our writings. How did it? So how does it show up in the game's code and the gamer tag? That's very strange. I found out about it because I let a buddy of mine borrow Homecoming on the 360, and I saw him playing it, and it said he was exploring Milburn Cemetery. I was like, "What the That's fuck is so that?" Weird. <laughs> I messaged him. I was like, "Where the hell are you?" He's like, "Oh, I'm at Rose Heights Cemetery." He's like, well, "That's not what your gamer tag says." <laughs> That's um, so strange. I mean, we have nothing. I mean, everything I have is Rose Hill. In anything I've written, everything, everything is Rose Hill. I was just wondering if any of your if any of your friends you like lumbered them as names on the gravestones of the cemetery. <laughs> There's some great names on those headstones. If they're great names, then they're probably people we know because we can't come up with names that cool. The people you went to high school have the best names always. We did have yeah, a team here where uh, we had some missing people from SH1. Oh, here was another one. You know, there was a Grim Reapers list in the first Silent Hill game. You remember this Grim Reapers list? Yeah. So we had a bulletin board in the asylum that was going to have the names of missing patients. It was going to be Lydia Finley, Trevor White, all the names off of the Grim Reapers list. I don't know if that made it in the game. Yeah, a lot of notes that. in Alex's. Uh, the street where the police station is located is Beck Road, for those who Oh, care. yeah, that's my hometown right there. <laughs> we have, for some reason, I don't know why we... We have spelling bee winners here for some reason. Hold on. Ooh. Well, somebody probably said we. Oh, you know why? Because we had board. we had Stowe Elementary was going to be the school. We had uh, spelling bee winners, and there were names of uh, uh, my wife, Jackie Morris, was on there. Brian Horton, the designer, that never made it in there. Right. If you look in chat, Ronnie shared a screenshot of the Milburn gamer tag thingy. It says potential security issues detected. Yeah. I just, I download it anyway. Cause I, yeah. What do I care? <laughs> yeah. Milburn cemetery. So weird. I don't know that. I don't even know. I don't know why crazy. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah. if it came from something that was from Chris's past, I can't imagine that's a coincidence. Was Rose Hill not anywhere else in any other games in the Silent Hill games? Nope. Just homecoming. Uh, where is Rose Hill cemetery? Let's see if there's one in Chicago. Cause that's where. It, oh yeah. The Rose Hill Cemetery, it's the one. Rose Hill, Rose Heights. Rose Hill Cemetery. Oh. Yes, Rose Hill Cemetery is the cemetery near my house in Chicago. It's Rose Hill in all my writing, so they must have changed it at some point. Those jerks. Ah. And maybe they <laughs> changed it to Milburn Cemetery at one point, and then maybe it was Rose Hill, and they said, we can't use that, so they changed it to Milburn. They said, we can't we'll just go back to Rose Heights, and then Milburn got stuck in the, the DNA of the game. Yeah, I've got I've got Rose Hill in like every single design document, everything, so it must have been, it must have been in there. Very weird. 
Is there any way you can share all those Zondok stuff with us? <laughs> you you no. share all you your know, you, files. You, yeah, you know, uh, it wouldn't really be it wouldn't be the right thing to do. Final question: If you had the opportunity to now edit anything within the game, what changes would you make, and why? And what is the most enjoyable, fulfilling moment of your time developing Silent Hill: Homecoming? I'm sure if I went through a bit more, I'm sure I could come up with some stuff. Patrick might have something. I would say the most fulfilling thing for sure, though, was going, like, getting the game. If I remember correctly, did we not get a free copy? Did I have to go to the GameStop? You did. I had to go copy? buy. I had to buy an <laughs> Xbox 360. And yeah, but yeah. we got the last laugh because uh, they gave us a PlayStation 2 so we could have on hand to play some of the older games. And I never gave it back to them. Mm. And then um, a oh. friend of mine, Jackson Stewart, who's a horror film director who did a great film called Beyond the Gates, who's a huge Silent Hill fan and horror fan game in general. I gave him that uh, PlayStation with my Silent Hill games being like, you deserve this since you love these games more than I do. And so now he's got, and it says property of uh, the collective on there. So ha ha, oh, nice. I, got, I got their used PlayStation too. But going to get I won't put this game. in the podcast. No, please put that in the podcast. They're not. Oh, a- no, no, no. I was only just going to say so typical Konami that you didn't even get copies yourselves. It may have been a situation of you're going to get one at a later date, but it was like the game came out that week we wanted to play it you know we wanted to see it we wanted to see how it it had been a while too because there was a break between when we were completely wrapped with everything we were doing and we would go back time to time and give little bits of things here but then they you know they need the time to finish the game and put it out and so it was months and months that we just had no part in it and we didn't know what other things had gotten cut and what stuff remained and how exactly it was going to how look and all that so there was there was a lot it was like it was very much like going to a premiere of a movie that you wrote like yeah you were there when the beginning of it you were there for some of the shooting of it but you haven't seen it done and so getting that game from the GameStop, going home and playing it you know over the course of days and seeing these little things and these little things pop up and be like oh i yep i wrote that thing and i came up with that no oh that thing turned out better than i thought and you know some things turned out not how you thought but that was really the most fulfilling part of the in- entire process and I'd, I'd have to add now that it's this like diving back into these things after 15 years like i clearly have to go back and do a little bit more homework on some of these storylines that I've forgotten about all this time. But just knowing that there are people who have an interest in this stuff. I'm not even going to say a love because some people love it, some people hate it. That's fine. Just that people have an interest in talking about these things is so awesome. I could talk about this stuff all day, even if I don't know what I'm talking about. Patrick, do you remember what you, uh, what I, you I edited out I, of the game? I mean, I wouldn't touch uh, one, one letter of our writing. Oh, yeah, it's perfect. I mean, it stands the test of time. I think, if anything, I wish, the only thing I wish for the game is I wish that we had just had, not just for us, I guarantee you everybody on the team would have loved a longer lead time to make the game because I think there yeah. was a lot of stuff they wanted to do. And just two years, again, as I learned, is just not a long time to make a great game. Like all things that come out of stuff that we do, I wish we had just been able to, you know, the studio didn't continue on with the, this game studio didn't continue on with any more Silent Hills. So that pretty much would cut us out of having been involved in any of the later downpour. Once Tom came in, Tom Hewlett, then he brought in people he wanted to do for downpour, which is fine. I mean, that's sort of how it works. I would have loved to have explored more stuff with Silent Hill, but I will say that just being able to play in that sandbox for about two years was pretty great. Having been a massive fan of the game. So if this is where it sits with this and I could 
can say that I was part of this thing. And there's stuff I love about this game. Visually, I like the way it looks. I like the way it feels. Some of it's a little silly. Some of it is like a little cringy when I think about stuff that we wrote in there. But there wouldn't be much I would change. I just wish we'd gotten to do more Silent Hill stuff. We talked about like a series at one point. We had started mapping out other ideas for another game, which would have been very cool if anybody ever asked us for it. But no one ever did. So they'll just sit in the in the creative ether until maybe one day to be revived. So and there's an idea that we had kicking around about it's funny is before the world of podcasts and uh, and like true crime, we had an idea in our head about a guy who's a, a true crime novelist. And he is like been this guy who's written about like the most prolific serial killers ever. Like a what? About Walter? About Walter Sullivan? Well, this would be a new story. He wouldn't have the ties, any ties on the hill, but he'd be talking about like whatever in our world, whatever serial killers. And he was always wrote these very respectful kind of stories about the life of serial killer what made them become serial killers but there's this one serial killer that has been elusive to him that is still alive that he had always wanted to interview and talk to and he gets this call it's a serial killer and he's like I want you to write my book but you have to come to me and he's like okay I'll come to wherever you are and he's like where are you he's like I'm in Silent Hill and so dun, dun, dun. and a buddy of his is a cop is like you don't really understand what you're getting yourself into because he knows some history of the town so it's like so I'll come with you and so off they go in a Silent Hill and then I don't want to give away what my endings, but they they make very <laughs> grave discoveries once they get there. And that serial oh. killer's name is Pyramid Head. E Head. Kira <laughs> M Head. Yeah, yeah, yes. I would love this idea. And it's like this guy basically has no clue what he's getting into. He's interviewed serial killers, but now he's in a world of death and stuff. And so it does sound like a really interesting game. It would a be a really noir detective story. And yeah, we made a detective story and stuff, and it would uncover more secrets of the town. And and this guy's got this family. And, and so, anyways, there's that. If anybody works in any creative endeavor, Chris and I are screenwriters and we're TV producers, and we're just lucky enough to find places that need people like us to, hey, here's something going on. Do you want to be involved and be a part of it? Making your own thing, then having the avenue to take it, to have someone take you seriously enough to go wherever it needs to go next so that someone say, yeah, let's do this. That's a very, very tricky proposition. And so the game business... We haven't been, not been in it for a very long time. And if anything, we really didn't set out to be in the game business. Just this particular game was something we were really interested in doing. Uh, but the game business is so difficult and so hard to navigate and pretty insulated. So this opportunity that came to us was really because our friend Marwan is a game producer and just had the opportunity to say, hey, I know we have the usual suspects who write games, but how about these guys who love horror movies and Silent Hill? And then we just took the opportunity and and made the most mm. of it. So it just was an incredible opportunity. It wasn't like we could go on site and be like, let's apply for a Silent Hill game. It just ended up happening in the way it happened. Marwan coming out of film school took his path into games. We took our path into writing, always hoping to find something to work together on. And that was the chance. So we took it. It's often been said that the first four Silent Hill games was very much like a Eastern take on, on Western horror, whereas Silent Hill Homecoming, Silent Hill Downpour, and the games that preceded Silent Hill 4 were more of a Western take on Eastern horror, which I think would have played really well in Japan because I take survival horror far too seriously. And I'm always complaining that the Resident Evil CGI films, the CGI films, official ones from Capcom, they're far more action orientated, but that, that plays so well in Japan. I wasn't sure, what, what was it a censorship thing? Why Homecoming was bad? And in Japan. I have no idea. I have no idea what that was for. It got cancelled after Konami wasn't happy with the PC port of Homecoming. 
with regard to the PC version, when I got my PC, I'm, one of the first games I went to download off Steam was Homecoming, and it was awful. It was full of bugs and very disappointing. But then there's a patch. It really just completely fixing the Steam version of Homecoming, brings up the cutscenes to 4K. It, wow. it gets rid of all the bugs. It's by a chap goes by the name of Unknown Project. So if anyone wants to go on the Nexus Mods website, I was completely green to the, these things. If someone like myself can, can install this mod, anyone can. You think Chris could do it? Yeah, I could probably <laughs> I think do it. he can. If I, if I could do it, anyone can do it. <laughs> I know the Steam one is like seemingly always on sale for a dollar or something like that, but I can't play the Steam oh. version because it's not a Mac. It's only on PC. So yeah. well, I wasn't aware that that Steam version was lousy. So if, if people can play the game, they should have access to however they want to play it. Get hold of Unknown Projects patch and the game plays and looks absolutely beautifully. And just before we go, I'd like to give a very quick shout out. I was only able to get in contact with you guys through the kindness of a chap who interviewed you some years ago, Davey Redfield from White Umbrella Files, the Brazilian website. Oh, White Umbrella Files. Did we, oh, yeah. We, we talked to that. Yeah, and, that guy was cool. Yes. And you very kindly agreed to speak to this complete stranger in, in England. So thank you. And thank you to Davey Redfield for doing that. That was very kind. Thank you so very, very much, guys. We've been recording for three hours. Thank you. It's we're, incredible. We're sorry. We're, we ramble. I, wait, before we go, one thing I just want you guys to do. Yes. When you have a chance, go on to Google and type in Deputy Wheeler and look for the image of Deputy Wheeler and then open another window and type in the image Sam Worthington, Werewolves Within. Look at how they depicted Sam Worthington, Werewolves Within, and then look at the character's name. And then you tell me. Ah, to be continued. We will do that. I think I know where you're going with that. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I was like, yeah. It's Wheeler. It's Deputy Wheeler. Look at the uniform and look at, I mean, it's the exact same thing. I mean, it's literally the same guy. Thank you very, very much, PJ and Chris. So kind. It's been incredible. This has been a true highlight for me. I know it has some detractors, but for me, Silent Hill, Homecoming, it does so much that the other survival horror games try to reach. Thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is great. It was really nice meeting you. Thank you so much. Just real, real world pleasure to talk about this stuff and just glad there's interest in it. And you guys are fantastic. Yeah. Good questions. This was a great one. You guys are terrific. And thank you for coming on. What happened to Jill and Wesker? Good luck, soldier. Thanks. Miss your brother, Alex. Everyone's gone. We're never gonna find them. We're going to Silent Hill. You won't be going anywhere. Did I get some answers? Josh. Too long. I'll find him. <laughs>